Welcome to the Crash Courts Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And this week, instead of going just to Copenhagen, we're going a little bit further. Wait, are we going to the 80s? Are we time traveling? Oh, no, no we no. did that already. No, not time travel. Space travel. Well, I mean... That's further. That that's is further. See, distance, you're, you're not time. space can't really go by distance. Points. That's, that's true. a whole other dimension. I mean, space-time continuum, it gets real fuzzy after that. True. Well, can't see yourself in the past or the future. You might well, screw things up. Th- this can be well, measured technically you in miles. Can, so. If you can travel faster than the speed of light, which is still theoretically possible in a couple of sects of science, uh, you can see yourself in the past by traveling faster than the but light. But you're not supposed to because it would ruin things. Actually, no. Viewing the past wouldn't act, wouldn't, wouldn't be an, a problem. Well, that's also because if you viewed the past, it means you always viewed the past, so it doesn't change anything because you've always done it. Well, no, you wouldn't be able to interact with the past. That's the difference. But what I if think you, you're on three different strands. Of, uh, I was going to say, I'm theory. working off of like Doctor Who, The Flash, Back to the Future, and like two others. It's not viewing the past with the ability to interact with said past. I it's mean, just a reflection like in a pond. Yes, if you can break the light barrier well, because to go it's far not, enough away. Because time isn't linear, it's like a circle. No, time is actually a random series of events that are only basically in the most... Uh, smallest of ways connected to one another. Well, the universe is but an aggregate of non-simultaneous events that are only partially happening at the same time. And, I mean, also technically we're always time traveling because time is, never stops moving. So, well, if you're only, existing... No, that's only if you believe in the linear path of time itself. Well, right. But, no, but technically still if you're existing, moments are happening, whether they're happening now or in like 18 other alternate universes, they're still happening. No, I've proven go- okay. that theory. Yeah. yeah, and we're not going into alternate universe. That's a whole Hawking different thing. Hawking has words for you. <laughs> Several. <laughs> Books worth. Volumes, even. Volumes, Vol- yeah. We're going to go volumes, of yes. All right. No, well. today we're going to space. Today we're going to be traveling with the Rosetta Probe over to, I can't even pronounce the name of the, uh, the asteroid the, 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 the probe, uh, well, we'll get there, but it's the, we're going to call it the comet. The, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just the comet. Um, it's Russian. I'm good at pronouncing Russian, but this one was hard yeah, for you me. You took like four years of Russian attack. Yeah, and I what failed a lot. Oh, right, I failed a lot of that's Russian. Fair. That's fair. Um, Maybe I'll cue you when I get to it. <laughs> no, we are traveling with Vangelis along this journey. And this is not his first time, nor second, nor third, nor even like tenth time that he's done something like this. No. He is an old school electronica musician who likes to. Gee, who would have guessed we did an electronica album? Shut up. <laughs> uh, he, he did it for me though this time. That's true. <laughs> that's, I mean, you've I, mentioned gonna... Vangelis as much as we've mentioned Green Day, Weezer, and insert other band here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the multiple reasons I chose it. One was because, yes, Steve has talked a lot about Vangelis, and we've also talked about him to, to a slight extent, because he is a, he's a prolific musician. He's done a lot of music, and he was something of a progenitor for Electronic of itself. Number two was, well, we're doing an album in space, and that's always cool. Uh, we've had hit or miss with that in recent experience. I'd still liked a lot of that album. Not all of it, but and probably not even most of it, but a lot SPG. of it. <laughs> um, Don't even say the name. Number three, it was another way for me to explore Electronica and what Electronica can do. Even though this album, just up front, isn't 100% Electronica. It's an Electronica orchestra composition of the two. You have a lot of very natural sounds and a lot of very synth sounds. So it was sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of different reasons, but primarily it was I wanted to keep the theme going. It was working, even though I do want to get off Electronica at some point. Yeah, Vangelis likes to kind of drift back and forth between using Electronica to compose in traditional manners of orchestration, but other times he can get pretty experimental. Yeah, I'd like to go 
go through a little history on Vangelis. Not just my history, but the history of Vangelis, period. Because today is probably the answer to dozens upon dozens of occasions where I'm like, that sounds like Vangelis. That sounds like Vangelis. Quite Vangelis-esque. And in all cases, I'm referring to the only Vangelis album that I really have known for a long, long time and know it really, really well. And that is Albedo 0.39, released in 1977. More on that in a moment. But first, some background on Vangelis. Vangelis' first name, or real name, is Evangelos Odysseus Papatanasiou. He's Greek. <laughs> yeah, gee, how could you tell? <laughs> a composer of electronic, progressive, ambient, jazz, and orchestral music with a massive discography and a respectable amount of soundtrack work. So if you don't know Vangelis by name, you might know him from a few obvious places. Say, for instance, from the soundtrack to the film Blade Runner, or from the film Chariots of Fire, the soundtrack to Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and perhaps a less likely reference point, 1492 Conquest of Paradise. That was released in 1992, the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage. Uh, and the film did not do well at the I box imagine. office. <laughs> Considering I don't recognize it at all. Oh, then that's the standard, the gold standard for whether films are good? Hmm? Sure, why not? Well, maybe at the box office. <laughs> maybe you're linked to that, I don't know. But uh, yeah, nevertheless, his, his soundtrack and his title single enjoyed quite the latent success from that film and even won some awards. He also did the 2004 film Alexander. Ditto there on the film box office and soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> but Vanzelis, as a musician, he's mostly self-taught. He began composing at age three, which seems to be the magic number. And but suddenly I feel less accomplished already. Yeah, well, we did. We went through this before with Owen Pallet. Yes, these so other yeah. three-year-olds just churning out albums, I assume, from the way this reads. But in this case, I would not call him a prodigy. He was just sort of an idea machine. He was only interested in writing his own music from the get-go, never really kept up with lessons or instruction, kind of shied away from music schools, and never really learned notation properly. So... You can at least relate to the guy, yes. you know? Just, just wanted to do the thing. It's not crazy that three-year-olds, you know, start getting into music around that time. Sure. And that's kind of the way this reads to me. But he's also, and I found this uh, particularly interesting, he was a fellow memory-oriented musician. Uh, here's a quote from an interview with Life magazine, courtesy of <coughs> Wikipedia. When the teachers asked me to play something, I would pretend that I was reading it and play from memory. I didn't fool them, but I didn't care. I, I appreciate that just because I've never heard it put quite so bluntly. At least he owns, you know, not being uh, a great sight reader. I was, of course, pretty much the same way. I was a horrible sight reader. Still am. Memory was kind of a crutch, but at the same time, when other students struggled to memorize things, then I was ahead in that department. So I guess you just got to pick your battles in life, uh, unless you're naturally awesome all around. In which case, please leave this podcast, for this is a show for the imperfect and the curious. As we are all flawed on this podcast. I don't know about you guys. I'm perfect. I knew he was going to say that. I knew it. I, predictable every time. <laughs> is that in your notes? Predictable. predictable <laughs> right, is a, exactly. Predictable right. is a flaw. All right. But honestly, Vangelis got along just fine considering all of this stuff. He explored music on his own terms. By any stretch, his work for the last 50 years probably amounts to about 50 works. If you amalgamate between his studio work, his soundtrack work, and his unreleased soundtrack work. Because there were a lot of uh, scores for foreign films that he did and also documentaries that he lent his talents to. He gets recruited pretty much by anyone who knows his style and deems it a perfect fit for their project. And so, as you can imagine, it's a fairly trademarked style. One of the reasons I referenced, uh, or I continue to reference Albedo 0.39 so frequently is because of its 
transcendent, but also kind of funky, abstract approach to musically narrating astrophysics. And uh, this is going to be a huge component of today, but essentially, what Boards of Canada's Tomorrow's Harvest did for us back in episode 54 regarding post-apocalyptic themes is basically what this album, Albedo 0.39, did for me regarding the cosmos at a very, very early age. Totally left up to interpretation, and yet also totally specific at the same time. That album was the embodiment of space for me as a child. I think it played no small role in me getting interested in space. All in an album that is mostly lyricless. The only lyrics, I guess, were the British speaking clock at the end of the very first track, Pulsar, which is, by the way, a portmanteau of Pulsar and Star, and also a terror-inducing distortion of an Apollo mission conversation in uh, Mare Tranquillitatis, which scared the living daylights out of me when I was little. And also, technically, well, actually, this is the most lyrics of the batch, the last track, the title track, Albedo.039, which is sort of an almanac of values. Maximum distance from the sun, 94,537,000 miles. Minimum distance from the sun, 91,377,000 miles. It goes on with mean distance from the sun, mean orbital velocity, orbital eccentricity, obliquity of the ecliptic, length of the tropical year, length of the sidereal year, all culminating in albedo point three nine, albedo point three nine, which is the amount of light that is reflected off of the Earth's surface, 39% of it, which is an average, of course, because in areas of fresh snowfall, the albedo is upwards of 95%. 95% of that light goes right back up to space. And so to find out that years later he had also done the Cosmos soundtrack was perhaps the most unsurprising thing. It was definitely a part of my formative years of music, this album. My dad had the vinyl. I don't even really remember not knowing the album. Before I, was, before I knew what electronic music was, I at least knew of Albedo 0.39, and I'm sure that along with other Vangelis works, that probably influenced a whole new new generation of electronic musicians. To me, Vangelis sort of demarcates an era where electronic music before him was just a wacky avant-garde experimental stuff. Sure, there's lots of pivotal moments there in the history of it, like the soundtrack to Forbidden Planet back in 1956 or 7, but it was definitely fringe art for sure. And then after Vangelis, electronic music was a genre. Like, there will be a section of electronic music in your record store. Might just be one row, but it's a start. But on top of that, I also don't want to oversell Vangelis as a pure electronic musician. Sure, it's his dominant area, but he's also done plenty of work with acoustic instruments. Uh, he plays acoustic instruments alongside his mess of synthesizers, among them a Hammond B3 organ, a Yamaha CS80, and a Korg 700 monophonic. Or maybe these are older instruments that he doesn't use anymore, but it sounds like he kind of still does. But, like, for instance, in the soundtrack to Alexander of Alexander the Great, as you'd expect, it was mostly ancient instruments that he used. He used sitars and, and duduks, and he even conducted the orchestra himself. So thematically, he's a pretty adaptable composer, but I am going to kind of stick to the electronic side and specifically the space theme for today as it is most relevant. Because apart from Albedo and Blade Runner and Cosmos, which alone make it pretty clear that he likes space, and I have some quotes to that effect in a moment, he's also composed some rather pointed tributes to specific space missions, or at least pieces that he tied in with space missions, chiefly for NASA's 2001 Mars Odyssey mission. The Mars orbiter, which is still up there by the way, still orbiting, still surveying, it actually holds the record for the longest continuously operating orbital object around a body other than Earth. It was equipped with thermal imagers and spectrometers and a bunch of tools that have led us to believe, as we do now, that Mars likely had water in the distant past. Today, they still actually use it as a relay for the Curiosity rover. So it was a major, major step in the long ladder to get to Mars, the 2001 Mars Odyssey. And for a mission of this magnitude, it had to have a 
theme, and that theme was Mythodea, a portmanteau of myth and ode. He seems to like portmanteaus too, it seems. But although it was actually just a piece he wrote back in like 1993, he didn't really write it in 2001, it only had one concert at the time, and it was never recorded. So from what I gather, the piece was repackaged as a tribute. The audio CD was timed to be released precisely as the Mars Odyssey entered Mars orbit on October 23rd, 2001. And the live concert that preceded it was held in the ancient temple of Olympian Zeus in Athens. It was performed by the London Metropolitan Orchestra, a 120-strong chorus, and led by the voices of opera divas Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle. The sound of it was said to have filled the vast temple, drowning out Athens' traffic. Fucking A. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're, if you're going to pay homage to you know us actually reaching a celestial body, Jupiter, Lord of the Sky. That's right. That's eh, pretty you got nice. all those names there. You might as well do it in the place that the names actually came from. Uh, but I, on top of that, I think that the people who really appreciate it is probably NASA and you know the ESA, which we'll get to, uh, just the whole space culture in general. Because if space culture had a court composer, I imagine that would likely be Vangelis. NASA actually gave him their public service medal back in 03, and the International Astronomical Union named a minor planet after him as well. 6354 Vangelis. It's actually an asteroid. It's in the belt, but since then they've started to favor the term minor planet instead of asteroid or, for or the planetoid. larger object. Yeah, planetoid. planetoid. There you go. But I don't think you've really made it until you have a cosmic body named after you. Uh, so yeah, he's established, if, if that doesn't establish right. it for you. But that takes us to Rosetta. Uh, today's album, which if you're catching the theme here, by no accident shares its name with the European Space Agency's Rosetta Probe. And that, by no accident, shares its name with the Rosetta Stone, as the ESA advertised, in the same way the Rosetta Stone led to the deciphering of Egyptian hieroglyphics almost 200 years ago, scientists hope that today's Rosetta will unlock the mysteries of how the solar system evolved. That quote was actually featured in one of the three ESA music videos that promoted the mission using Vangelis's music on the album we're going to be we're going to be exploring. But just just a quick history of the probe so we can start immersing ourselves into the very specific environment that's been given to us for this album. The probe was launched in 2004 for a mission that began in 2014 when it actually began investigating the comet. Here goes. Cheryumov Gerasimenko. All right, slow, or slow and steady wins the race, right? Comet 67P. Thank you. <laughs> We're just going to call it Comet. The Comet. The Comet. No, no, not the Comet. Comet. Let's give it a title, Comet. Seriumogerasimenko. Comet. All right, and it was actually intended to explore this comet with a little bit of help, uh, and that was with its very short-lived lander that traveled alongside it, the little... Philae. And Philae did indeed land on, on the comet, it, uh, albeit in a kind of awkward crevice. There was a little problem with Philae. It performed admirably for about two days, and then briefly again several months later when they regained contact with it. But sadly, it was ill-positioned for communicating with Rosetta long-term, and for receiving light to its solar panels. Rosetta, however, was much more successful, teaching us a lot about comets of its type, uh, proving some theories, disproving others, like the theory that these comets delivered water to Earth in the past. That was mostly disproven. The water that they found was actually of a different type. I don't know the details on that, but needless to say, that theory is kind of debunked as a result of this mission. Sometimes what is debunked is just as important as what is bunked. And that's why we like space and science. But eventually Rosetta actually taught us as much as we even expected from Philae, because when Rosetta went in for its final impact toward the surface in September of 2016, it was a slow approach with better instrumentation than Philae had, so we actually learned a, a lot, a great deal on its last 
best heroic charge toward destruction. Because it's kind of hard not to anthropomorphize these spacecraft. Robotic or not, when you consider what they do, it's, 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 a, it's a noble thing. And they do it on our behalf, even though we built them, even though they're inanimate, you gotta give them credit. And I think that's mostly what this album entails. But where does Vangelis fit into all this? Well, apparently, he had a video call with ESA astronaut Andre Kuypers while Kuypers was aboard the ISS. And that somehow inspired Vangelis to dedicate this album to the ESA team that made Rosetta possible. I don't 100% grasp how that connection was drawn beyond it simply being one of the coming-of-age projects for the ESA, but it was the closest study of a comet yet, and the only attempted soft landing on a comet period. Uh, and Vangelis was moved enough to create an album that focused both on the science and the human element. He was clearly writing it throughout the entire mission's duration, from the probe's arrival in 2014 to the album being dropped just one week shy of Rosetta's surface impact. So, on that, that full story that you've been given, I'll just give you those last quotes that I promised you from Vangelis. Because during the project, he had told the ESA that mythology, science, and space exploration are subjects that have fascinated me since my early childhood, if you couldn't put that together. And they were always connected somehow with the music I write. And to really lay it on thick, he once told Reuters in an old interview that music dominates the universe. It is the prime force that has given shape to space. That's deep, man. I believe yeah. he's talking about math in that situation. Or physics in general. Probably, but he said music. But there is music and math and music and math and music and vice versa, yeah. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) All right, well, let's dive into space itself and explore the album art, which is, of course, of a giant rock, which we can only assume is meant to represent the comet. It's more of a snowy dust ball and or a dusty snowball. Looks like a rock. comets have been described. Looks like a rock. No, 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 this is just a rock. Looks like a rock. This is a rock. Very metallic. Very well, edgy. I guess dust is rocks. But that's not... It's the... kind of heart-shaped, though. Oh. No. Or butt-shaped, Necess- depending on how you look at it. <laughs> All right, that's closer. That's <laughs> closer. Here's the thing. It actually is a little bit narrower in the middle as a result of it decaying over a series of millennia. I mean, it's it's apparently... It, it's a very, very interesting... It's more of an hourglass shape. That's probably how I describe <laughs> it. But we're not exactly seeing that angle on the front here because yeah. it's showing us a little bit more toward the front of one side. But it's quite narrow in the middle, which was a very strange shape that they discovered for the comet at the time. And, of course, the right-hand corner is probably supposed to be Rosetta. I imagine. You get those solar panels. I don't yep. think it be anything else. Can't miss it. But having it on the backdrop of that uh, Milky Way-esque blue yeah. does yeah, a lot to highlight the comet in contrast to the satellite itself. True. And I think that's meant to resemble the halo of it. Although you can kind of, I mean, comets tend to have halos naturally, but at the same time, you have the, it's only highlighted by a light source behind it, which in this case, the light source does seem to be the starlight in the distance, in the great distance, going through a sort of a manifested artistic license bluish nebula. Yeah. And I mean, probably we, also, isn't there, but. we have the asteroid circled by a series of red dots. Red and blue dots. Red and blue dots that kind of um, ripple outward. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I want to imagine that's meant to represent the kind of um, uh, orbit that it, that the satellite would have had around the uh, comet, I think. I would actually uh, argue that it is the sound waves of the music. That's what I would say. Uh, I mean, it could be that, that this too. music is a representation of that rock right there. Probably. That one, that one hurtling through space. 
add that in with the Vangelis title on top, Rosetta title on bottom, very classic style and just keep it <laughs> simple. Kind of short, wide font, very science fiction-y looking. That's exactly how uh, Alien was presented, I remember, in the 79 right. film. Yep. Um, and, and we don't have the same villain here, per se. The only villain is space itself. I mean, that's down. not a villain. It's, space is pretty scary. It is pretty scary. So it's it a hazard. A it's a hazard, not uh, yeah, a villain. Yeah, it, yeah, it, true. Unless it's being personified as an individual or an identity in and of itself. It can't really be a villain. Well, in this case, the only individuals we seem to have right here are the comet, Rosetta, and space. So yeah. those are the individuals that they have to visualize in this album. Well, uh, yes, I guess. <laughs> we'll go with that. Like... We've nice, gone farther nice, for less. I've gone farther, but I'm even saying that nah, I'm not quite there yet. I, I think I, the music is going to have to actually support a statement like that. True. I, I mean, a final comment on the um, comet, if you will, uh, is that as far as album artwork goes, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty face value. We're not left to figure much out. It's that's, all presented here. That's why Which is fine, because that's kind of sets the tone for this album, because, again, a lot of what we're taking from this album is presented at face value if you know anything about why it was made. It's it's probably the most um, marketed, maybe that's the wrong term, but it is promotional music. In yeah. some sense, this this is probably... It's music for space! Music for space, but also music for the ESA. And space exploration in general. Space exploration, but, you know, it's meant to to promote it to the to the masses. The yeah, It's meant sure. to get you interested and I think uh, that makes it closer to a commodity almost I would agree I I think that space as far as space exploration goes as it becomes more commercialized you know you want to keep the right people invested in it because the more it gets commercialized right. the more big business could just do whatever the hell There's they want with it a so, huge public relations campaign that is involved with NASA and the ESA and really any organization like that well just think about the new trend of people trying to figure out how to start mining asteroids, meteorites, and things like that. Because uh, that the, always goes well when we start doing that. Yep. Well, no, like one of the big materials you can get in space that you can't get on Earth because it's so rare is palladium. Yeah. Palladium is used in a lot of different things yeah. in the most minute of amounts. Right. And if you had a pound of it, you'd probably be one of the like top 500,000 richest people in the world. Until wow. we could get enough of it that then it would be worth nothing. Well, if we could get enough of it so that it's worth nothing, we're talking about Pluto-sized. You need a lot of it to be make it worth nothing. Oh, but Pluto. something like that, while, yes, it's going to be commercialized, definitely going to be commercialized. You can't do it any other way. But at the same time, something like that would allow our technology itself to expand forward. So yeah. as much as we should still be afraid of governments and businesses getting into space exploration and exploitation, as long as we still keep in mind the idea that we're trying to expand who we are as people, we should be in a fairly safe area there, at least. Well, until somebody screws it up. Yeah, that's well, that's which inevitable. is inevitable because we're inevitable. Humans. Yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> all right. Introduce that little cynicism let's, into. Let's uh, let's jump right into the actual album itself and uh, more on space later. Um, track well, one, right now, <laughs> origins, origins, well, yes. arrival. Track one is is essentially. First of all, how do you visualize Arrival? I think it's obviously Rosetta's arrival. It could be also the comet's arrival in our vicinity, but I think it's Rosetta's I mean, arrival to the comet. I would this only was written from the beginning of the mission. I would only argue against that only because thematically, and this is a little bit of a preview, we get Rosetta meeting the comet later on. Here, it feels like the comet entering our system again. See, I think there are different interactions with the comet later on. I don't necessarily think it's meeting. I, th I think when you talk about origins and arrival, it's probably true that you have to think about two things. That it's arriving both at the comet and also that the origins are the origins of life, which was another huge component of this mission and why it went on it. But with a track called Arrival, first, just that timpani-sounding thud, right? As soon as we start, 
and of course the deep string drawl uh, alongside it kind of gave me the sense that this was, that I was Rosetta, that I was taking the form or that's what, who we're supposed to be relating to, and that I had just arrived at the comet, still at a nice safe distance though. We hadn't really begun the mission, but I had just opened my eyes to this behemoth. Well, it doesn't have eyes, but it has instruments, and they do kind of switch it on as it gets close. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember this particular story as much as I remember the New Horizons mission. Of course, when that approached Pluto, there was the, the intensity, and of course, it was traveling so fast, it had to get all that information done in, in a GIF, like in, in a matter of, what, 20 minutes to an hour or something like that? It was an incredibly short window. But that's because that was a flyby. Here, Rosetta has to, has some time to spend with uh, this comet. I mean, as far as the music and how it feels, um, there is a sci-fi element. Like, it doesn't feel quite real at first. It does remind me of things like Star Trek, especially the the droning kind of synth sounds that are kind of pervasive from the beginning. It's really located, for me, because uh, I'm on the same page as you, in that synth horn yeah. With the way it's uh, rising and falling, and specifically the fact that it uh, does a stuttered rise into a rise with an immediate fall, pairing back and forth between those two different ideas, while we're getting, at the same time, a very natural-sounding, earthy tone. Sort of a hollow, sort of a, a windswept kind of a feel. Yep. The combination of these two things is... Marrying technology and science fiction and, well, not science fiction, science mm -hmm. and the sort of tropes that you get with sci science sci music. Sci-fi without the fi. Yeah. With something that definitely feels down to earth, that feels terra firma. Yeah, except that earth is the comet now. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, and that's why I would actually terra say comata. it feels more like the comet entering our system because it's not heavy on the synth. It's not heavy on a technological aspect. There's still a lot of low rumbles, even if they are in the more THX kind of a rise, the, the low rumbles still feel thicker and grander than something that is very frail. Yeah, the, now this is the satellite. It's more natural, it's more ancient, and uh, thus as a result, you're right. I don't think that the comet or that the the spacecraft is really that active yet. I think that it's just a witness, and I think as a result, I just feel more like a witness to the the comet which is stealing the show. Well, and I'd also say something that backs up what Steve's saying is how as the piece progresses, we get a sense of fluidity and even soothing um a soothing emotion because we're kind of just floating along at very high speeds, but but we're floating along. That's relativity for you. Though. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think also when the chimes come in, these are those accents of kind of what Steve's saying, I think, like of Rosetta opening its eyes, you know, these little sparkles of moments like surges of electricity kind of turning on those sensors a little bit. And that's what I really like, the contrast between that and the more... Bwom, kind of a noise that's been going on. It wasn't on. quite a bwom, it, but... It's brom. brom. It's not brom. a brom. I'm There's sorry, Mike Rignetta, if you're listening. Brom. Um, but, but yeah. But it does... I, I did I did write that down, too. It has this kind of sonorous sound that was really cool and kind of in the background. It was around 57 seconds in, and it's actually... You, you get a repeat of the phrases that you just had in the brass, but here now it's lower brass, and it is very sonorous. It, it, it's almost like the strings are starting to get to work, and so if you could equate that to the to the mission getting to work, sure. And having it contrasted with the chime work that is twitchy, it's it's mm -hmm. piercing, it's it's definitely at odds with the the natural terra firma that I'm gonna I'm gonna call it terra firma. We're just gonna stick with that <laughs> for now. Um, I I like the way that one is playing off the other, but they're doing their own themes. They're not really 
uh, interacting yet. They are remaining secular to one another. And this allows me to sort of see a developing personality or personalities in the music itself. Well, I want to rewind just to a couple of things that you brought up earlier that I just want to make a couple points about. For instance, you brought up the wind effect. Yes. That sort of, mm-hmm. That's something that, of course, we hear very, very early on. And it, it it's interesting that I even heard it at all when you really consider the fact that it's space and there's, there's obviously no wind to be had. There's no, it's not Vacuum. air wind, right? But there's enough suspension of disbelief here already. Like, we know that space doesn't make sound, at least not that we can interpret. It's different kinds of wind. It could almost be solar wind or maybe the tail of the, or the halo of the comet. They always talk about outgassing and stuff with objects like this, which is going to come up a little bit later. So even though, you know, none of it would really make a sound, you do get those textures. And that's why I, I could absolutely suspend disbelief. So that, that's my point on the on the wind. And as far as the brass is concerned, when you that which we got, you know, just shortly afterwards, it's about probably as prominent of a brass melody as we've yet heard on this show because of just how short it is. Mm-hmm. It does conjure up a lot of images for me of, of science fiction meets nobility and just the noble cause that is space, which is why it really held my attention. Like that it's not just some old sci-fi film with a traditional plot, but it's something a little bit grander, something concerning discovery and implying great risk with just a few notes. It single-handedly turns our spacecraft, like I said, into a hero, a traditional hero in a brand new setting. Yeah, when I said that it was reminiscent of Star Trek, I'm talking like Gene Roddenberry stuff, and I'm also talking only in the very early moments of that synth. As it progresses, it definitely does feel more rooted in fact. I mean, even as the track uh, progresses to its latter parts, there are thuds that come in that sound like physical drums, and I imagine they are, but they're so deep and kind of low under everything else that they're just adding a little bit more space work, as in, you know... Distance. Distance, (laughs) just to clarify. um, That really fills out this scene that we're seeing, I think. I like those uh, one-room-over kettle drums that are coming in. That's That's... it, that actually shows up a lot, and I, yeah. didn't, I didn't bring them up yet on my notes, but it was... That was the first thing I said, the timpani-sounding thud. Yeah. 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 But, like, they're, it's more they're prominent the towards the end of the track, though. Maybe You hear it very early maybe... on, but you can really it, tell. Well, I heard it as the first note, right. literally the first note of the piece, and yeah. then it does kind of come back later, and it grows in, in you know, different levels of chaos and intensity. But, you know, another thing... Just one more thing about that melody, because I know it's a small component of the track, but at the same time, when you only have four notes, right? <laughs> that's like, those are, that's the big thing. That's the big theme. Um, and to me, it was interesting also that just those first few notes, it is like, the one is high and one is low, or at least one ends a little bit higher, one ends a little bit lower. So it's, it's so simple and yet so telling of a melody. The first phrase looks to the sky, and then the second is aware of all the risks. Yeah, that's my that's that's the which the is rise definitely the a recurring theme on this album, and yeah. we get it pretty early, which I appreciate because again, we're not going to make any bones about it. There is a clear overall theme of this record, without question, as far as it's about Rosetta and the comet. The detail narrative, narrative. Uh, yeah, narrative, but the detail work is where we can kind of debate and and dig deeper. Yeah, and also I noticed that at some point, also a little bit deeper into the track, I start getting more of a Vangelis flair. Because given given everything that I said at the beginning, I'm a little familiar with his work, but I'm also familiar with his work 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago. And, you know, you you feel it in the the instrumentation, in the way he composes. Not as much of that uh, 
uh, that that funk flair, I yeah. guess, as he put in back then. This is more of a a reverent piece, a reverent of a specific thing, whereas yeah. that Albedo's 0.39 was a little bit more ad- abstract. But you know, for instance, the 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 synth when it starts ad- arpeggiating wildly, the, the thing I guess you said was a little more chime-like, mm-hmm. the very pitchy thing. It, it, it like. It occurs as the chaos starts brewing, and of course that sound itself does really remind me of stuff that was all plastered over Albedo. So he certainly has not lost some of the same artistic tendencies in all of those years, but it was a little bit more impactful even just when you consider all of this stuff happening at once. The cacophony of the sounds that you've heard in the very beginning of this track, even though they're not terribly numerous yet, they all get bigger and they all get imposing. And so that once you have that, that very pitchy effect to add on top of it, they start vying for dominance. And I would say also as a final thought on this track, this does very much on the whole feel like the opening to a first act of what I consider to be three acts on an album. It just, it really does lead you in, and I think when we move to track two, Star Stuff, which I love as a name just because it feels so pedestrian or, you know, just non-sciencey. It feels very nonchalant, and I like that. Which was part of the plan, probably, by the guy who coined it. Uh, and I, That person is Carl Sagan. Of course. I believe he's the origin of that phrase, we are star stuff. And, yeah, I, I think that it's it's a pretty it is pedestrian but it's meant to of course get people as right, cosmos yeah. and his series and his whole i guess tv personality in many ways what served was to get people interested in space and when you consider that that phrase alone is the phrase for everything for you me for this table this microphone that is what star stuff is. It's all molecules born in the white hot depths of ancient stars. And that does have to make you smile a little bit. And it's not just that quote, because that quote is still incomplete. We're made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. And that was the more yep. impactful part to me. Because this was, we are the stars viewing said stars. We are the universe viewing itself. Which is why it's appropriate here, because a this is the tool, the chief, the paramount tool in terms of understanding the universe is our things that we send out to the universe. And so uh, appropriately for a track like that, we're getting more of a sense of ourself in this record with this track. Um, something that I noticed that sets this apart from the previous track, because we have the kind of droning of synth like the previous track had as a bass, but we have a synth murmur that comes in and out very early on, almost like like a voice murmuring over the, the deeper synth, which to me feels alien or electronic, depending on how you look at it. Well, it's, you know, there's a little bit of an unsettled, settling nature, mm-hmm. I guess, that continues through this. Certainly it feels alien. It feels yeah. cold and unrelenting. But at the same time, there is a little bit more of a glimmer of hope in this track. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still don't yet want to talk about this, though, in terms of our traditional emotion. Like, it's not smiles and frowns, really. No. It's not happy and sad. This is the cosmos. It doesn't care if you're smiling. It just happens. And if it happens to be beautiful along the way, then that was a happy accident. Uh, overall, though, this this track seems to trek backwards in time, like way, way, way back in time. Because when it's called Star Stuff, it's it's this is almost the truer origin story than the first track Origins. It's the combination for me of the repetitive beat work, I, I guess I could call it beat work, tonal work, that is that background murmur that uh, is just a rise and fall, not quite a sine wave, it's it's a little bit more haphazard than something as steady as that, that does sort of emerge and subside and emerge and subside, sort of the same way a lot of uh, science fiction movies have done it. 
uh, like Tron. The first one that comes to mind is Tron Legacy, and right. the major theme for it, without the major kind of just brom noises hitting it, is that do 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 do. That when that shows up, it does promote a very regimented sort of an unending idea in the beat. But when you contrast that with not just the violin, but the, scr- the, the the really scrapey touches on string work that's going on right there that are higher pitched, that are definitely along the lines of that twi- twitchy, piercy chimes we got previously, the combination of the two is once again putting at odds the two different ideas. Yet this time, the pitches feel more muted, especially that higher register. They don't feel like they're as abrasive, so it doesn't feel robotic to me. It feels uh, it feels almost angular. Just pure angular. It feels like natural processes exactly. like nat- coming to fruition, which is, it's interesting because that second I, I, uh, that second sound that you brought up, the twinkling specifically, is almost like, it, it's like the slow burn of things coalescing, uh, as they do in the accretion disk from which you, me, and everybody came from. It's, it's viewing that process from a distance and narrating it through the lens of this ancient comet whose consistency is closer to that origin story than, say, this cup of coffee or this glass, which has gone through a few more chemical changes since then. And I think that's what I find most alluring about this track, is because with the first track, you know, it's called Origins, but it still seems like it could be a little bit generic. Like, it could just be, yeah, the the vast opening, you know, bum bum bum, but then you get this, and this actually dives a little closer into the story that we're trying to understand. Well, that's why I think there are parentheticals with Arrival, because while it is an origin of sorts, I think the focus, the more specific term, is it's an Arrival. Whereas here, yes, we're, we're really getting deeper in. I think also this track at larger moments gives a better sense of the vastness of space, the vacuum of space, because you do go distances in the track without a lot of sound. You get rumbles and synth drones, which to me conveys that vastness. And it's actually very appropriate for your imagery. It's very muted. It's very quiet. It's borderline ambient. It's hard to... At moments. At moments. I won't even say at moments. Like, the vast majority, up until about, like, three, three and a half minutes in, it feels like a very subdued... From from eagle eye view, kind of a piece. Yeah, viewing a process from a distance. I mean, it's it's it does kind of bring a smile to my face. I guess at the end of the day, because it's not things that are meant or setting out to harm you. It's just witnessing the cosmos and how we came to be. And I think that that origin story should put a smile on your face. But of course, by three minutes and thirty seconds, the clouds seem to part because by this point it seems like he just told the whole story that the everything is finally coalesced and at first it was just a chaotic nebula and then in the space of four minutes or so it's it's done we're here but where's here where is here well no i mean that's a real question because even though we're again we have this framework we're traveling and we get a sense of traveling but we don't know where we are in the vastness there is no destination yet or specific point in the vastness of space here. I, I would like. actually argue against that. Okay. Specifically because this is our destination. Specifically well, where we're is being it? described. This. Well, but see, that's the No, 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 no. You're trying to label a location. Location 
doesn't work the same way in space. And that's, that's the point I'm making. See, destination is what we're talking about, right. not location. You cannot. Really I'm saying there's in. no location, though. We're gonna but, have a location. That, and we it'll still be have a lo- We still have a place, and that's the thing I want to harp on. Because after this three and a half minute mark, as we go through the last minute and a half of the track, minute and a half plus of the track. Things like that, those Tron notes that I heard earlier, they actually start peeking through everything else. The scratch that showed up earlier, those violin tears that were showing up, Mm -hmm. they start peeking through a little bit more, a little bit more. They kind of got lost in the middle of this this scaping that we're going through. So we're getting little nods towards the definition of what was going on because these are the more identifiable notes because they don't change as much. Right. So to have them showing up and have them being the, the tail end of this piece, the, the quote-unquote finale of this piece, uh, does a lot to actually give us a firm destination. Maybe not location relative to us, but the destination we are viewing. Once again, these are abstract concepts for right. a fairly abstract album about a very specific event, which yes. is what I find interesting, but it's, what, it's what's necessary to do in order to glean all of these implications. One of these implications is, of course, track three, infinitude, the state of being infinite. That once, no matter whether things are, have finally coalesced, even if we arrive at here, and I do kind of see track three as being the present in many ways, that we've just gone through all the setup here that didn't actually involve Rosetta or in, really involved Rosetta at the first eye-opening moment until we went back in time in order to tell the story about why it's there and all of that other stuff. And then finally here, we're we're here. We're here, we're now, we're, under, we're trying to understand the universe. And what I like about this track is with my familiarity of Vangelis, which is about in the same place Steve is, though not as in-depth, because that album that Steve has mentioned countless times is one that I am also familiar with because my dad owns it on vinyl, which is, I argue, still the best way to listen to that record. Um, the only way I ever did. <laughs> um, this sounds like that Vangelis to me, at least in moments here. We get a peek into the more electronic, digital sound of his. Though it does start off ponderous with mild string work, this yeah. this does not right away hit you in the face no, with no, that no, sort no. of like energy that I... I actually kind of was waiting for in this album. Right. It's when the piano steps in that energy may not actually be the right word, but at least activity is now going on. Well, there was activity enough for me even just considering that initial thing because for me, you know, that low, the low drone, the string drone kind of plays like a continuo, but it's all you have at the moment. So honestly, that was melody enough for me. And then alongside the echoing chime-like doubling, there's really some neat syncopation here. And I think maybe that's what Matt meant by the the old school Vangelis seeping through as it does at this point. But since you uh, are going on to the, the melodic content, because when we finally get there, that's pretty, that's neat because because it sort of rocks its way, skip step down the scale, backtracking again, then down again, then backtracking, and then it finally terminates. And we do this several times, but we gradually add things here and there. It's a little bit freeform. This is the first moment where I get a real sense of progression. Not that the other things weren't going anywhere, but like we said, we had a location, but I did get a sense of movement because when you're staring at black with something moving in the black, it's hard to get a sense of of where you are. But here I'm starting to feel that. I mean, it was very beautiful, the melody, and I was intrigued in a different way than I was in the first two tracks. Again, and Steve's right, this does lean me more towards what I'm familiar with 
that Vangelis does. Not that the other stuff isn't, but just where my frame of reference was. And also there's some things that I never really heard in his work before. For instance, I, I no longer really heard the string drone as strings after a while, it but rather- It remind me of like synth or something. It reminded me more of a male choir, actually. Oh yes, yes. Just a constant, constant like, uh, you know, over I mean, in the background. is there a setting like that on synth to do oh, that? Oh, there's probably quite a few things that he <laughs> uses that we now have access to, but well, originally he was the only guy that did, or he only was seemed like the only guy that did. I I think it was the crests of it that really did make it sound like a voice, though. It did seem to go up and come down. Yeah. Well, having a lot of those crests accompanying specific parts of the piano melody did a lot to add to that sort of wishy-washy area of whether or not it's vocalization. Mm -hmm. Because since it's usually getting paired with or immediately following a piano key, it makes the sound itself a little bit on the wishy-washy side. And that, I, I love that because it's almost an echoing effect. And it does a lot to make the piano melody seem more interesting than it may actually be on its own. This sort of, it's not a juxtaposition. It's just a, a compliment, one complimenting the other. But it adds a lot of mystery and mystique to it. Almost an eerie quality for me. Yeah. Almost, but I'm yeah. feeling very safe here. It, it's it's it is safe, and I think that makes it just very atmospheric. Where despite all of you know all of the little intricacies here, which was probably still a little bit more interesting the last couple of tracks, it's uh, it's still atmospheric, and all of that was kind of lifted at the three minute mark because this was a really nice musical ear opening moment. This is when the the bright echoey piano here in combination with this pizzicato effect to really syn syncopate back and forth and of course the the seesawing strings here have also they've, they've never really left but it was this was a great part b it was a great push for this piece but then i had two feelings with it two two uh only two well two opposite feelings okay but the first one was actually that I was a little bit upset because I liked this section so much. I was upset that he didn't push the theme anywhere. Until I realized that this theme was being pushed right into the next track in yeah. a way. And it, it, this actually became my favorite track transition on the album, beginning at 4 minutes and 23 seconds, really late in this piece, when we change chord and just, you know, uh, this we, we lift away this, this pesky reverb that's just been slathered all about. And then all of a sudden, the space is retracted. And then from there, we go into track four, Eggs with Genesis. We're not going to get into that yet, but that, that transition, uh, that process, I think, was really interesting to me. And it, it made me enjoy that, that three-minute mark in retrospect a lot more when I saw The Forest for the Trees and what it actually was trying to do. I enjoyed that part. I did. But I felt it was more of, excuse the pun, in a vacuum kind of a sense. Uh. <laughs> Um, I liked what the piano was doing a lot. I dare say I love it, and especially the reintegration with the A section right at the end was quite an eye-opener. But the way that buildup was going with the strings subtly and then less subtly overtaking the piano in the A section, to go from that to a very secular piano section was a little bit disappointing for me in the theme because it just felt a little bit too grounded. It felt a little bit too removed from space itself. I, I felt like we, if we're going to go with the imagery that this album is supposed to represent, I felt like we were kind of jumping the gun and getting on top of the comet right away. And that that doesn't appear till later on, so here it feels like it, it's a little bit hasty. But see, that's interesting because that that little problem that you're having is almost... 
Uh, the, actually, the problem that I was about to have as well is, and the way it was solved is really analogous to, I think, the theme that he is trying to build, which is, of course, if you're going into track four, Exogenesis, which is, you know, the hypothesis that life originated elsewhere and that it seeded Earth, such as on the comet in question, then there's a huge human element to the story, a huge human element that I think he wouldn't dare sacrifice because that's a part of the mission, in which case you have hero themes, you have things that relate to humanity. You can't, just to be removed from space for a moment, and connect it to our particular vested interest in this, which is, of course, chief among the grand search for life, I think that's an important thing to do. And as far as exogenesis goes, I think that the most human element we get pretty early on is how frantic this sounds comparatively to other tracks. There is a sense of urgency here that I didn't really feel up until this point. But it's very playful, and that's what yes. keeps it extremely just pure pleasant. For I don't me. think Purely, it's frantic. Happy. I don't think it's frantic in the sense of um, fear. It's franticness in almost overexcitement, like uh, Bumblebee. Yes, Flight of the Bumblebee. It has that same sort of general feel to it. It's a buzz. It's, it buzzes. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Yeah, and just it's less. It, like there's a little bit more. Oh, using this word again, space yeah. <laughs> in between the notes. Like it's yeah. not that that rapid fire thing. Instead, it's just a little little spurts and then it stops and then it comes back. And mm -hmm. So I guess I, all right, maybe well, it's like a accurate. buzzing bumblebee that comes close to your ear and then drifts away, yeah. not constantly hearing it. And, and actually, that could be compared to the space between the satellite and the comet and kind of weaving in and out, actually. We could probably get anything. Uh, I guess that's probably the big thing that we're going to have to keep track of is just when are we going too far, I guess, with the analogies? Because all these analogies can be made because we do have all this material being given to us. I so feel is like it all fair can't. game? I feel like it is only because uh, essentially when we're dealing with imagery and what we picture, we don't really set limits to that. And I feel like, especially here with something that's completely instrumental with no lyrical guidance, we should just let our minds go kind of wherever it wants. All right, that's fair, but I would go back. I would probably just lean toward what you originally set up, and that is just simply you're searching for life, and there's excitement involved in that. Right, Because sure. it could be one of the greatest discoveries ever made. Sure, and, we can keep it more broad. And if we were going to put limits on imagery, I'd probably just end up like, okay, I'm done with the podcast. You won't, you won't let my imagination run rampant. And here... <laughs> The rampancy actually does show up in the contrast. Once again, I love the contrasts that are being built into this album because he likes to put a juxtaposition between the piano and the strings. And also... Here, a lot more stark. I love how regimented the piano actually feels as we move along. The swells seem to come almost on a cue, yet the ADHD that's inherent in the piano is just all over the place. It doesn't care because it keeps doing different chords and different notes on top of where those same swells are it felt like it felt like a, a spider just randomly scurrying along the keys yet there's this this overwhelming force that's doing the same not the same thing but the same beat the same pulse over and over again to have the two going back and forth was very impactful. It's it's really where Vangelis's jazz flair kicks in. I mean, it's just a lot of mid-range piano answered by another high-range piano. And talking about contrasts, like you did, this is really very similar to it's, it's similar almost to what we heard at three minutes in the last track. So this is sort of like an answer to that. So yeah. You've got answers to answers to answers here, and it's just at first it's just another theme, you know, another motif until you hear those chromatics 
in, in this. The, and, the, and the pitch bends, or you almost feel like they're pitch bends, and they could very well be if it's all done on a keyboard that has a little pitch bend wheel, then it's just this ring, ring, little, you feel that every once in a while. It could even just be, you know, if you're playing two notes right next to each other on the piano, they kind of got a, a good performer can get that effect. They can make it feel like it's bending rather than actually bending. And also I noticed that the left ear, like the higher theme, starts climbing up the chromatic scale into nothing, right? And just completely fades away. And they do that several times here and even comes back at the end of the track. Uh, but just one more cool thing before you guys continue on this is because uh, my experience also from playing piano and, and playing in headphones a lot is that I'm so used to hearing the higher pitches in the right ear and the lower pitches in the left that the switch up in this and hearing it backwards was actually just kind of a cool little relief uh, because you, you're not used to hearing that so you hear something it sounds fresh it sounds inviting like it was actually mic'd and again this could all be direct input in which case he's just getting the same digital effect and reversing it but it also could be completely separate tracks and I think that's really what's going on here. I'm also really interested in the fact that every, as we progress through these tracks, he's introducing new little quirks. Like there, there are synth notes here that almost sound like a bird cooing. That's a really cool. Effect. And it, it was a really cool effect because I couldn't even really place what was. I mean, obviously it's a synthesizer making the sound, but it did. It was one of those moments that sounded almost human. It's like this. It's like right, and so you can hear that parabola there. It gets close, it goes away, and it's gone. Talking about adding in new things, like, as Steve said, it's not the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do because he doesn't hit every key, and he doesn't actually go along the scale perfectly, and that's that's another little thing. I the, thought he did, but it's hard to it's, hear because it's very faint. That's a very faint track. It, it it seems like at times he's he's backtracking or falling apart as he's going across the scale. Little random elements of chaos that he's throwing into this really makes my piano spider... I, I, as much as everybody hates spiders, and you're supposed to hate spiders, except you're supposed to also love them. That's a that's a di dichotomy they right there. They kill other bugs. Yeah, they do. But it's it's so endearing. I could see a little happy smiley face. It's not a spider. <laughs> it's the cartoon expression of a spider having fun on a piano. But honestly, bringing up the spider does lead me to stuff that comes later because as we start to parse the stuff going on in the background like the deep drum thud that's always there the deep chord the deep chord and then th those frantic notes kind of playing and then falling off it does see start to give this kind of frightening beauty to it which i mean when you think about space that it is both beautiful and terrifying yeah we're, gonna and get we're a lot getting of that. and we get a lot of that later but had. here there's some foreshadowing which we'd gotten already as well and it really does stand out in moments in this track that's about 1 minute 39 and I, I don't know, I, I actually have a little bit of a different interpretation there because the chord progressions just beneath this section, but considering I love the jazzy part so much, the chord progressions here in the background, in those strings, they disappointed me a little bit just because they felt like very standard cinematic hero patriotism. Um, they also felt very classical, and I realized that you know there's a huge com component of that, I guess, in his orchestration, but I also recognize the purpose of these progressions, which is everything that you just said and the terror therein. But I don't actually feel any... I only feel that regimented string progression that does feel a little bit on the safer side only added to the whimsical piano. And I don't feel fear. I don't feel apprehension or any sort of foreboding nature. I just feel whimsical. Maybe uh, a lack of thought process is really going on right here. Maybe there's some just like absent-mindedness going on right here. Maybe that foreshadows it a little bit in the littlest way for me, but it just feels whimsical. It just feels like it's just 
just childlike. Well, that's fun. what the jazz piano is. But to me, it's just that when they inserted that other section, despite the fact that the jazz piano never really left, uh, I guess it just did seem like it was trying to transform the goal or the emotional center of this piece. And then, of course, toward the end, that uh, that those deeper tones strip away, and then you're just left with the jazz piano for the tail end. I, I don't know. I guess my only problem in the section was the integration between that final cinematic portion and, and the, the ceaseless piano parts. For the first time, I, I, I felt that as a section, the two parts here maybe not clashed, but that they had something going in the pure whimsy. And I didn't want him to sacrifice the pure whimsy. I didn't really feel like when we uh, added the cinematic strings, we really gained very much that wasn't already introduced in a bigger, more focused sense in the earlier tracks. I I'm actually on the flip side with you. Like the mm. previous piece, where I didn't quite accept it at the end of the day. Here I'm I'm enthralled. I just can't I, help but focus on. I thought they, on my mu- little they muddied friend. up the, the spider. I'm okay with the muddiness. We're though. on muddy mud on spiders. We're explorers here. All right, so let's go keep exploring with <laughs> track five, Celestial Whispers. Might be one of the worst segues we've ever had on this podcast. That's okay. I mean, I, I'd have to go back and check, and Steve would probably be more experienced to make that call. But it's up there. <laughs> but anyway, moving on to Celestial Whispers. What I do, what what this reminded me of actually is something so out of place for the album. But it's only based on my own nerdy background, and I kind of have video games on the brain. But the flow of the kind of tone sound reminded me of the exact opening to many RPGs, most prominent in my mind, Final Fantasy VII. It has that Aerith theme tone to it. But that said. That's based on my own personal um, video game knowledge. The song itself doesn't display that. The song itself just has this kind of sweet, beautiful, ponderous sound to it. That's just where my brain went because I have that connection. When Matt brought this up off air, we actually paused the track and I was humming the opening credits for Final Fantasy VII. So we were in an amazingly specific spot with this piece. But that's completely removed from what it's actually representing. Again, that's just my own brain where it goes. But cinematically, for me, it's still there. It's not necessarily an opening scene. This seems like a very specific type of reflection going on. Sort of a pondering placement kind of a thing, which if you want to talk RPG scene work, because they do it extremely well in certain places, Red 13, Final Fantasy 7, specifically, it's it's a red dog man. He talks, okay? It's Don't, weird. It's, it's, it's an anime. Um, he's standing in front of the moon in very shadow-oriented relief. So you get the idea of contemplation, of discovering one's placement in the universe. That's a scene they're going for. I'm feeling that extremely heavily here. It does an excellent job of sort of putting a perspective on everything that's kind of been going on so far in this album. Well, since we're on references, I have a reference as well, which isn't nearly as specific. It's more of, again, a generalized uh, era and feel, but it can there can be a name applied to it. I'm more making this point to sort of tie in certain things for maybe longtime listeners of this podcast, <laughs> or in this case, not even that long. Two weeks ago, we had a little album called Atlas by FM84. It was very 80s, and with a lot of 80s stuff going on, and we had a lot of 80s references. And one of those references that we kept going back to was John Hughes' films. Yeah. You know, we kept saying that, the, oh, there's so much sad things about this, this track that feels like it could just be that love scene or this or mm-hmm. that. But when you really think about it, those are pop tracks. They might appear on a John Hughes soundtrack. But, you know, of course, sometimes John Hughes would have brought in 
you know, not big-named composers by any stretch, but just people to compose their own little thing to the background of a single scene. The, the scene work when you feel like uh, uh, some important bit of information has just been laid on to a main character. And so, yes, you do have something, uh, a little bit of a ponderous situation. But also, like, it's a tender moment that brings me back to so many nameless scenes, but at the same time, I know how I felt during them. And that's what this accomplished to me. Despite, you know, the, the almost but not quite canon in D chord progression, I, I just thought this was this really perfectly would bring out an emotional scene in any film. You may think it's tacky. Well, and I would say also to bring it back to how all, what we're all describing is different ways of describing the same thing is that there's a sense of uh, innocence and ruminated, rumination here that I think applies to all of that and allow. I mean, look at the title, Celestial Whispers. That itself sounds romantic and, and a way of romanticizing space. And I think that's really strong here. I think also for me, this is where I started to get a sense of the multi-act feel of this record. Because this does feel like the end of an act one. Because there, there's kind of this drifting off into thought that you would have at the end of a first act. That thought gets portrayed because the beat is so non-committal. It's so non-insistent on being there. It really just rises and falls with the sort of like radio feel of everything, of the progression of the track itself. Almost uh, borderline lullaby even, but definitely within like a dreamscape. Definitely something that is not 100% firm. We're definitely off a of terra firma here. But since the beat itself is not insistent, everything else has to carry along the message. And since everything else is rumination, everything else is low key, that's really the only way you can you can really summate it. It has to be dreamy because nothing else is trying to ground us in reality here. Well, I, I do have some opinions, at least on the experience of this track versus the artistic approach, but... I, but at least if we're going to talk about dividing up this album in a series of acts, I, I think it's fairly appropriate when you consider that the last few tracks leading up to this have all been about the either the formation of the comet, the formation of the universe, the grand secrets that it has to tell, right? Uh, with, chief among them, possibility of exogenesis, and then Celestial Whispers. As if now all these... It's all done. We are, we've completely arrived at the present... And now it's just the sort of solemn nature of the comet. You know, there's not a lot of daily events in the <laughs> for eons. It just sort of sits there and floats through space. But it has in it lodged all these secrets. Sure. And I think for that reason, this is a really, really nice place to end. In which case, yeah, of course, this track isn't going to accomplish much apart from simply saying there's a comet there. And we can learn stuff if we want, if we wish to know it. It's, it's actually just a very pure, innocent, and incredibly relaxing track. Actually, of course, it's, it's more akin to usual a usual spacefaring day. You know, the time between massive cosmic events, like the one that formed this comet, and things like that only come along once an eon. In the in-between, it's just a lot of waiting, a lot of calm, a lot of stillness, and regularity, and predictability. The speed the comet is traveling now is probably very comparable to the speed it was traveling at a millennia ago. Not much to fear there, not much of a story to tell now. So sure that it's hostile to humans, but we're a spacecraft. We're just a chunk of metal. We don't have the same concerns as humans do. We have different concerns. We have instrument failure and computer errors that are always looming. But in general, we, we, just, we just kind of blend in with the cosmos. We are an inanimate object floating around other inanimate objects, trying to understand them. And that deserves some pause. 
which is what this track accomplishes. So having this pause here and having it sort of a finale for Act One uh, works really well to add a for me for me to add a lot of impact to Celestial Whispers. The the use of the word secret. I really wanted to try to figure out how to put that word in when I was explaining this track, and I couldn't quite get there. Well, also, and think about as we're continuing to, you know, um, anthropomorphize these things that aren't actually people, if you're a comet traveling through space for millennia, you're going to ruminate. You're going to think. There you go. And also, based on its lifespan, there could be a sense of innocence being young for a comet, you know. All of that kind of thing. That's pretty old, though. I would say it's pretty wise. I think it's seen some shit. (laughs) But but, but either way, you know, if you were, again, if you were a comet traveling through space, you'd have a lot of time to think. And so I think this also conveys that. So having the next track called Abeto 0.06, it's actually kind of appropriate for this exploration of secrets because this is, it only reflects 6% of its light that hits it, which is a very small fraction considering, especially since the the Earth that we actually live on reflects 39%, if I'm not mistaken, that's the number, that 39%. That was the yeah. So this is a much darker place and we're going to start peering into it. So yeah, boom. There's there's my imagery. There's the, that's why you can't chain me up. That's why you can't put a, a curtail on how much imagery I can use. Yeah, it's a very appropriate way to really first introduce the information we're going to get from this comment. Well, for one thing, like you said, it, it obviously doesn't reflect a lot, and one of the reasons is because they say that the powder. Remember, I described it as a dusty snowball and or a snowy dust ball, but sometimes so those are two different comets. And in this case, they say that the color of the comet actually has a consistency very close to charcoal. So of course, it just absorbs so much light all the, the time. It doesn't really it doesn't reflect. It's very difficult to see, and that makes it. I think it, it, once you visualize that, and if you have had that in your head for the duration of the album, it makes it a much more. Uh, ominous object just this this dark mystery in the depths of space that now we're suddenly learning so much about very dark very scary and of course i like the reference to the albedo uh to the nod to albedo 0.39 the album i mean it was that was just an abstract concept but i think this returns to the the terror in a big way and this this brings by changing the number by addressing certain things about this specific object that in many ways doesn't have as maybe as much of an interesting story to tell as earth does but we know about earth and we live here on earth this is the great mystery this is the first song where we really get that heavy electronic feel we get a sense of technology here um but we also get a sense of the hero a little bit here which is of course the Rosetta satellite. And I think that's wrapped together in what I consider to be the Vangelis sound, even though that's not really a thing because he is very versatile. This is my frame of reference. And I like that we're leaning towards that as we start to explore the more technological part of this and less about the fascination with space itself. Well, I wouldn't go that far yet because I have a very specific take on this piece. Um, like you say, we do get into more standard techno sounds with the, the mm-hmm. techie pops that is all over the place here with kind of obvious deep rumble counterpoints. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say that it is a little bit on the obvious side, but it does a lot to counter the beats and ground it, which is good. But specifically your heroic swells, the, mm. the hero I don't think that's very much a different character. I feel like we're first seeing the character of the comet itself with these three parts. The 
tech could be the feedback from the instruments reading it. And that's how I'm starting to actually see this piece. That's precisely how I saw it. That it was the, the sort of the funky oscillating synth jam. That's the tech, that's the information, that's the data. And it's there's just a series of different sounds rocking away, but the strings beneath them, they return to the more cinematic touch. And that's that's something that I think poses the problem of solving the mystery, I suppose. That's the challenge, or it's just that you have to have both at once. You have to have the subject of where the data is coming from and the data itself. And I feel like everything is being colorized by the idea that it's data from something as opposed to just a pure description of the comet itself. The strings do a lot to just say it's solid, it's massive, it's big. The tech feedback would be maybe edges or crystals or something like that that are a little bit unusual and mar the general, I guess, smooth surface you may want to think of it as. While the heroic swells are... Like, the real grits of that information, the the things we're learning, that's what I see them as. Not necessarily a character of Rosetta or a character in and of itself, but the explanation of the different aspects of the comet, of the things that are going ooh and ah, and we never knew that before. Or we postulated this, and now we're being proven right or wrong. Like we said earlier... For all we know, Albedo point, point 0.06 may have been some data that was derive from the from the Rosetta. And as earlier, Steve pointed out that we were able to disprove that, or at least kind of disprove, that comets gave water to Earth because of the hydrogen deuterium combination that you get in an asteroid and a comet and things like that. It's different than what we have on Earth, yeah. but that's the science of it. And it's actually a very fascinating read. Uh, but here, it's it feels like we're actually getting just specific aspects of the character, specific nuances and those are in those heroic swells that's how i love to look at it that's how i really feel like it's it's a deeper aspect because they themselves go deeper maybe those are crevices and fissures we did not quite expect Mm -hmm. to see along it while outcroppings and sort of the crystallization showing up as those higher registers which is something that well yeah okay crevices tend to be deep and dark tones musically and the representation and outside edges tend to be bright and shiny and higher pitched So he's not departing from, you know, the tropes of how to explain a character, but the specific presentation is excellent. Yeah, I would agree with most of that, especially in terms of even the tropes. You know, even the I I realized, I guess, over the course of it, that although our brains have pretty specifically as they should have, because you should know something about this album going in, you should know what it's about clearly. Um, And even though we've been thinking about, you know, Rosetta, this particular piece probably could have been used for, you know, some other great sci-fi, even, even bigger budget sci-fi films, I would say. It, because of just the brass themes, it shows that he can come up with themes for characters, no matter what your hero is. In this case, so what if it's inanimate? It works. Yeah, I would say the big thing that stands out for me, though, is that this is the first time I feel like he's... Re- Repeating on himself a little bit. There is a, a repetition that stands out as we move through this track, and it does loop back on on the beginnings, which, I mean, isn't you know considering how repetitive Alice was, not really a huge problem here, but definitely it stands out here. Like the funky oscillating synth jam. That's yeah. relatively ceaseless. I yeah. mean, I enjoyed it initially, but it just it really just it keeps d- going throughout the whole thing. But I guess there's a sense of overwhelming nature to it that's important, especially when staring at a comet. Like also, you want a constant stream of data. If that were to stop, yeah, that would yeah. be poor form. Right. But still, that said, musically, it can't go unchecked. I did tire of it by the end. 
Well, I I want to point out that I don't think this is a new thing that's showing up yeah. on this album. He has been repetitive in other pieces, but in the other pieces, because they tended to be, when repetitive, broader, it was more looking at a picture or a painting that was, for the most part, homogenous, like a starry sky. It was black with twinklings of white light. Like, you can easily do a night sky with just those two colors, and you primarily make it black. But you can do beauty with just those simple monochromatic counterpoints. Here, yeah, because the data stream, the techie part, the how we're labeling it, seems to be ceaseless. I get that it does feel like it's looping a little bit more quickly. But that wasn't my problem. My problem with this piece was, well, I know it's supposed to represent this comment. And I know this comment is not ominous or evil or in any way. But I feel like I was missing the Brahms. We're, we're, mm-hmm. I really wanted to bring that up here. Because there was no counterpoint to the heroic fanfares. With no counterpoint, there wasn't a whole lot of characterization of what the contrast would be. What, um, what we really were looking for. I the, disagree with that. I think there was terror in this track. Granted, of course, when you're just focused on the data stream, then maybe it doesn't seem like there is. But I think it brought it back in another uh, great way. And that made it seem sort of like the kind of terror that I got from the first Albedo album, that I got from a few tracks in that. It, this, it had that, but of course it's not nearly as, it's, it's not as mysterious because we know the story and we kind of know how it ends here. Well, okay, that's, I don't feel terror. I don't think I've ever really felt terror on this album. No. Even going forward, I don't really feel terror because... I don't see a, a, a reason to be afraid. Well, I'm going to give you one moment. One moment was where we plateau on this wonderful piece of tension until about 4 minutes and 22 seconds, and then from there we start to fade. That was really toward the end of the track, and I think that was a nice, that was a nice release. It was a nice release from, I think, the tension that, if you don't feel it as terror, at least tension that I think had been there throughout most of the track. It's still a hazardous occupation. And it's definitely a strong start to what I'm labeling the act two of this album. And I think you couldn't have done it any other way because of those heroic swells. It really does build characterization, even if it's not as focused a characterization as John might have liked. Well, it, it's uh, to me, it feels a little bit idealized. That's I think fair. that's 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 where my big issue is. But considering our love of space, we do idealize some of those things like a comet. And it's still a, it's still a hunk of ice and rock floating. I mean, it... Yeah. I don't. I don't expect it to have depths of personality, not not really. I right. expect it to have secrets, but scientific in nature, not emotional necessarily. Right. Yeah. Haven't read that data stream. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to track seven, sunlight, and here's the first track where I truly feel like we're grounded. We get a sense of something more earthly, or at least more ter- uh, terrestrial. Is that yes, the right word? That's okay, the word great. You're looking for. So something about this piece that I don't think I really talked about when dealing with music in a while is a strong sense of emotion. It's a strong sense of emotion on this album too, but even more a feeling beyond emotion because the instrumentation on this track as a whole, and I try not to summate too much, but I really want to get this out at the top, it feels like sunlight. When At moments of this track, when the bright chimes especially come in midway, I feel the warmth. And I wanted to get that out immediately because I had not felt 
something so physical from a track in a long time. Well, first of all, a feeling beyond emotion. I mean, don't oversell it too much here. <laughs> that's pretty well, extreme. It's a physicality of it. Right, and that's mostly what I'm selling here. But let's also be clear that this is, there's a whole two minutes before we actually get that moment. That's it, true. Depending upon how you, you visualize it. Because, of course, during my first listen of this, I was trying to see the sunlight in the area within those first two minutes. Right. I was trying to see that, and I was like, this is an interesting way to portray sunlight. For one thing, it's still, it was just kind of, it was a very clean blend from the last track I noticed. We were still kind of jamming away as we were in the last track for the first few seconds of this, and then the clouds part. And, well, actually, that I sh that's almost a faux pas, because if the clouds part, then we have sunlight here. But that's how I thought originally, uh, that the sunlight was... He chose to portray stunt sunlight as a very ancient, almost like East Asian uh, instrument. Something you'd find played on like an erhu or something like that. It felt extremely... It, it didn't feel like, like something that would come from space. It felt like something very terrestrial, very Earth-related. I didn't feel like this uh, was really... I, I couldn't key myself into the comet all of a sudden, and I thought that was a little bit of a problem. And it's all until I realized that two minutes was the big reveal, because at that moment, it's it's unmistakable. That is the dawning. That is the the true dawning of, musically, it was the dawning of what the track is trying to go for, sunlight. I believe that was absolutely the the Rosetta probe just coming over the edge of, you know, as we've seen, you know, Earthrise and Sunrises in just about any single form. It comes over it and sees the the sun coming over the top of uh, the comet and the the composition here to portray that is just spectacular and, and gorgeous but those first two minutes for me did so much with so little and I love the way that it kept it so quiet because it felt like a pre-dawn the word you were looking for is uh, over the horizon the horizon yeah, uh, that's as right. small yeah. as it is there you go. Uh, yes it's Rosetta coming over that horizon but space especially when you're removed from a terrestrial body, is a lot different when it comes to sunlight and starlight. It merely increases in intensity because all you can really do to get more sunlight, to have a dawn, is to just approach a star. So here the music, for the first two minutes, is gaining intensity, but it's only a subtle thing. It feels more like it's just folding on top of each other, that the cards themselves are folding on top of each other as they rise up and build upon each other. The funny thing is I feel like scientifically, I, I feel the dawn would be a lot quicker here. I mean, you don't have, well, comets do have halos, but it's not the same kind of atmosphere that we experience on Earth where the dawn is seriously dramatic because it has all of that atmosphere for the light to travel through, and thus it's this slow, uh, majestic process. I feel it would almost be more like, I can confirm this, but I would think it would be more like a switch, being like, well... Boom, there's sun. <laughs> but you also got to keep the idea of the contrast between light and darkness in space versus what we would actually view. Even if you go from the comet to Earth, like our atmosphere works a lot differently than what a comet's minuscule atmosphere, if it has anything, would do. Because the light itself, the light itself would still be extremely similar with or without the sun in your direct view, even over the horizon. Because most of your light, even even when on a sunward-facing piece, would still come from the stars when you are particularly far away from the sun. 
and it's a comet. You're, you're, you start from outside of our solar system, or at least towards the edge of our solar system. So our sun would be nothing more than just a slightly brighter star, even at, even at the best of times, until you really start hitting past Jupiter, past the asteroid belt, past even Mars. Even, even on Mars, this, I, I believe it's something like a third of the light or something. I'm just throwing numbers out here. A third of the light that hits Earth actually hits Mars. Like Even though we're relatively close to one another, it's so much less intense. Hmm. So in one way, instead of just going over the horizon, it's almost we hit that breaking point where we actually sort of hit that experience of our sun instead of just another star or the ambient light of stars. We finally hit the intensity of a sun, a star, a true brightness hitting the comet. Well, there's also one other thing to, that I think we're leaving out, and I think might be more of the focus here because of how vast this actually does get. And just at some point, it feels like the force of the sun is actually shaking the ground on this comet because it's just so intense. That's how how big that this gets. And I think that has, has a lot to do with the the outgassing process. And that whenever the sun, the comet gets warmed, whenever one so, one side of it, one surface gets warmed by the sun, then you have these expulsions of gas in every single direction. It's a very violent activity, and that's one of the reasons why this comet looks the way it does and it's so narrow in the middle because it's actually been sort of burning itself away for eons and I think that's that's definitely going to come around when we get eventually get to perihelion but I think maybe this is foreshadowing that a little bit but at least this time we're not seeing the violent activity we're just seeing in every a, a day in the life of a comet because it still sees the sun and it still is burning away it's still a dramatic thing to witness and here it's portrayed thoroughly as a beautiful a beautiful scene I agree. However, I have to be the Steve of the group a little bit and bring us back to reality a little bit. So I will agree that that two-minute mark and then beyond is probably, at least for this year, one of my favorite moments in music and is definitely for the, for the wrap-up of the year because of just how it made me feel. But as the track goes on, and even when it finishes up, it does seem kind of on the nose. You know, <laughs> kind of? I, I'm being generous. Like... And it, I still think, I agree with Steve, it's beautiful, and it's well done, and it's well calculated, but I think, you know, it's also very face value. There's not much to imagine. There's a lot to feel, but essentially, it very much is what it is. There's no interpretation here. I'm, it I'm, is absolutely what it is. I'm glad you brought it up, because it had to be said. Yeah. I, I feel like we're just trading roles here, just yeah. for, to change the pace. <laughs> You're right, exactly. It's okay, Steve. You taught him well. Yeah, well, and I guess I'm feeling a little... I mean, it's not just because it's Vangelis, and I've been listening to Vangelis forever. It's it's really just because, yeah, I had to admire a beautiful moment when I heard it. And yeah, I guess, absolutely. yeah, I, I know you've been on that side before, and then I come in there to just, just, tear, it just down. tear it down. Uh, it's been done, it's been done. And I know it's been done. I I, it's, I said it a little bit earlier in this album that there are moments, actually not just moments, almost the album as a whole feels like it could have been the soundtrack to some kind of sci-fi channel film back in the mm -hmm. 90s. You know, not really high budget material, and of course it's Vangelis. It's higher budget than most, and he went to the ESA uh, to pitch this project. He has a vested interest in it, and they have a vested interest in public relations. That's kind of the idea. Because yeah. it needs to be, there's not the same kind of personal story being told. It's not the artist bearing their soul, per se. It really is more like what we said in the beginning. The kind of commodity aspect. Mm -hmm. That it is being ported out to the ESA for use because it's something public. It's something for everyone that we should all take into effect. That doesn't mean it can't be, you know, high art. And this is it's it's a different form of art, but it's still meant to be as broad as possible. And that's probably why we hear the links in this to other things. Yeah, and I think 
the next track, Rosetta, really fills out my second act as the conclusion of that second act because here we really get the hero's theme of the satellite as it is the title track and it is the name of the satellite um and it's the first time we're getting something that feels the least spacey it feels the most grounded in a person or a personal tone it feels the most grounded in eastern europe really yeah really greek Turkish kind of a feel to the overall sound and well, we don't, scheme don't of the instrument. Don't confuse those two. It's either one or the other, and in this case, it's Greek. Well, he's, he's Greek. There's blending between them, especially in this day. True, age. true, but don't say so in public. Oh yeah, no, I know, I know. <laughs> but it, there is a sense of a, a serenade or romantic feel here that definitely does feel different from things that have come before on the record, at least. And it feels, uh, a, I, I, it's this is not a negative. This is not a negative. It feels more manufactured because of it. It feels more regimented and specifically designed than a lot of the previous Chaos Spider stuff that we got earlier. Well, because as Steve also pointed out, this track not only feels like the hero's theme, but it also feels like the hero's journey because of the way it moves. You know, a lot of other tracks were kind of nebulous in their motion because, again, when you're floating in space, what is movement or motion when you're looking at a backdrop? It's all relativity. Right, right. Whereas here, we get a sense of a scene moving and a sense of momentum in a different way. It feels more human here. It's like something that would play over a montage while the character is walking in the desert. Uh, when there's not much plot, but you know that it's making the character stronger for having done it. Well, certainly the 10-year journey that Rosetta... Uh, underwent in order to get there. It, it earns you some chops, I guess, as a good spacecraft. Um, I I enjoyed this track. I see John's point, I guess, about it, you know, because it's... Manufactured is a difficult uh, word. Because like it, It's not a negative here. It's not a negative. Yeah. It's I, just a descriptor. I will say this. Uh, just because, you know, I, I know Albedo 0.39 so well, this really is alpha. It's not the first time I've compared tracks to alpha. Well, I've compared t- multiple tracks on multiple albums to multiple parts of that album. But even then, mostly to alpha. It seems to have been an influential track. I don't know. Or maybe it's just an idea that people arrive at. And certainly Vangelis has arrived at it, at least here, kind of twice. Because this begins very much the same way. It doesn't end the same. The the, the main melody, that is, which of course does sound incredibly uh, Greek-influenced. And I feel like it was used in alpha. There's a, there's a richer tone to this particular one, though. And... This the particular twang, whatever that instrument is. Probably just a synthesized version of something. Right. Well, I mean, and also, you do have a very um, almost hollow-sounding guitar here. And when it's f- we get into a faster kind of finger-picking feel, I think that's when this track has the most momentum and feels the most human. Because, I mean, nothing's more human than a wandering minstrel. And there's a sense of that here. That's well, it. One minute 50, by the way. Yeah, one minute 50. And that actually, I... First time I was listening, I I foresaw that melody shift. I foresaw that change in the overall theme. And it wasn't the only predictable change I felt like happened here. Because, like I said, manufactured is a descriptor, especially the late brass redux of the melody. Hmm. Of that reinvention, oh, let's bring in a separate instrument. Let's bring in something, you know, different from the tone that we already have in this piece. But I could have told you with three guesses that it was going to be brass without ever hearing this piece because brass has already been used on this album, or at least synth brass. So it, it wouldn't have taken me long to guess this kind of idea. And I think that's that's one thing that I'm starting to feel is, is lost. The mystique, the 
Not necessarily chaos, it's just the left and right turns. The, we're on a very safe part of the map. We're, we're away from the monsters. Well, but that's because I think we're supposed to have a familiarity with Rosetta. When it's being painted as the hero, it wants you to be able to relate to it. It wants you to be able to feel close to it. And I think that makes sense for this. I hear what you're saying as far as a progressing of the record and the sound, but I think for the track and for the closing of what I'm deeming the second act, it makes sense and it works for the structure. You know what it is? It, it's trying to reconcile that whole... Uh you have these different forms of stories that are told, then you have those works of literature that in many ways follow the same exact arcs, but now how to come up with different ways to tell the story every single time. The right. And I think yeah. We, yeah, we all know where this is going to go. Um, and there will be failures along the way. We know that actually Philae, you know, had some problems. We're not quite at Philae yet, but uh, it's, it's all going to prevail in the end. We're going to get our data stream. I mean, will we, though? We have. We already have. Oh, we, have. we already got some. Learning. But, but yeah, I mean, speaking of track nine, Philae's descent. I mean, th this this is what confirmed that there's a third act because this is our adventure theme. This is our you know rousing track of terror and adventure at the same time. And any good adventure, there's equal parts terror. Well, it, I, it's okay. I still don't feel terror. I still don't feel terror. I disagree. I don't that, know where you guys are getting it. I'm there's just a not sense of. This I guess felt like this. no, no. This felt like energized fight music. Like, right away, it was like, all right, let's go. D -d 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 yeah, fun. All right, I'll curve it back a little bit. Terror is maybe an, an over-exaggerated word. I think that it's more danger. Yeah, there's Just danger. Danger. danger and apprehension. Danger, yes, but without a firm identity of a person, of an actual me projecting myself into it, danger and fear aren't really marrying together. Danger just means conflict here, just means destruction. But destruction without the human life element, without the sentient aspect of it, without something that can feel pain, doesn't have a lot of fear for me. Um, I, first of all, disagree with that patently when you look at just the idea that I was completely tense throughout the whole New Horizons mission and whether it was actually going to succeed or not. Especially when they had... Can you imagine the terror that was felt on behalf of that inanimate object in the control room when they had that little computer error just like a day or within a week before it actually arrived at Pluto? It had a computer shutdown. They had to reboot because there was a little problem. It crashed. It crashed. A, the computer crashed. The spacecraft didn't crash. But that was a week before it arrived. That Which... must have sent chills down everybody's spine because they had waited... 10 years, the same amount of time as for this mission. But f for me, I, I didn't project there either. Even though I, I heard about it right away and I, I knew about what was going on, I didn't, I didn't bleed, sweat, or cry over that or this or anything else. So I, I'm, I'm not really putting myself in, okay. in Rosetta's shoes or the scientist's shoes. But that's why we have empathy. Right? And empathy is so you can put yourself there. And, and in not, this case... I'm not for, feeling it here. I, I've read some... All right, we'll, we'll get to the music in a second. But at least just that subject. I think the subject deserves a lot of terror. Some of these scientists have put literally their entire lives into these missions. Like, they're, they've just they've had interviews where they describe their kids, you know, were, were uh, just being born around the time when they started working on the project. And then they're going into college around the time that th they're still getting data back from. And they're still trying to fix things on the mission. That's... Their whole life. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little bit uh, dead inside about this ever since they 
buried the lander because they couldn't do feet and meters and everything like that, and they screwed up oh, going to Mars. Oh, on. That was one but mission. But something like that, like, it's it's just human error. Things like that happen and stuff like like. Okay, sure. But it's a lot I, of money. <laughs> I know, but it's... I did not. I, I can't see it from the perspective of the scientists in this case. There's a in level this, in this story that we're getting. I'm not seeing it from their perspective. There is a level of emotional connection and personal connection that I think is there's a void that John can't. Um, Which is weird because I grew up wanting to be an astronaut or an it's irrelevant here it because <laughs> this is not about your wants. It's about what the track makes you feel. And clearly me and Steve are at a different place because I felt like I was Philae listening to this track. I felt like I was descending onto that hunk of rock flying through space. Let me find the common ground here. The common ground, although I don't, I clearly is not your initial reason for whether you feel it or not, uh, for me is, of course, the sound effects. The sound effects, just the tone of it as a whole. The sort of you know the that 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 motif. I call it the choo choo string. There was a chugging. It's a chugging. That doesn't quite do it. Beat to it. You know, that's an older reference. Why don't we just stick to the fight films that we all know because they use the same damn thing. And that's my little problem here is that Vangelis or no Vangelis, these are somewhat dated sounds. The material itself is somewhat dated, and I think maybe it just diminishes the level of fear that exists with me only a few notches just because i in the same way that you know you you've played a, a game over and over from like the 90s you know a yeah. really really old game you played it already you're not going to feel, feel the same exact thing that you felt the very first time you played right. the game the better games of course will definitely try to maintain that for as long as possible but you can't deny that there's a little bit diminished just because your brain knows to expect right you you know you know that with the boss that's it's coming you're going to expect the visual but the first time you see it that's going to be absolutely terrifying and i think that i was I, I definitely projected a little bit onto this track because of my love of space and my interest in this particular mission. Um, and it it sort of guided me through it, but it wasn't a completely empathetical situation. Not 100%. Would you guys say you're not filleting it? Oh, that's the best. Yeah. That's oh, the point. Yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a point. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, that is... I was sitting on that waiting for Steve to finish. But no, um, seriously, with, with this track, I think that, I'm so yeah. Proud. <laughs> I'm proud. I'm pulling, I'm pulling a personal connection to it that may not actually even be there, John. But I think it's just enough for me to see that. That said, structurally, it is fairly predictable. You know, like uh, moments in the previous track, there are rises and falls that can be expected. It's... And intense that also could be predicted. It is still very well composed, mm-hmm. and I like a lot of the touches, like uh, the shifts that he goes through with the slight, slight just dissidence that he throws on top of things. The drum roll, the very militaristic drum roll that just rum, just beats out. Yeah, and then it shows up again later on, a little bit more. The touches are great. The texture is really great. It's just the material itself doesn't really feel new. It feels like it's just, uh, it feels repetitive, but it feels repetitive by introducing new ideas over and over again over a very safe theme. 
Yeah, it's tough because I feel like we had the abstract discussion of this track before we had the detailed factual discussion of this track. And there are a lot of things that objectively I really do like. I like the uh, around 40 seconds. You do re really get a sense of that approach. That's mm -hmm. spot on. Uh, the the Jaws like minor second there. Dun, 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 right. And then at 50 seconds in a really interesting flare. The sort of a beat and then a triplet, I think, on the end of the beat. Uh, sort of like a 16th note level triplets, which is really pretty fast. This da -da 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 Right? There's an intensity it's, that cannot be denied. Yeah, and that's all in the music, regardless of what sounds are being used. And also, it's interesting because it's very shrill at the same time, mm -hmm. that particular effect. So uh, it, that also serves to give me some of the, the impact. I guess the only problem was that it's an interesting approach theme, but this track did kind of play a little bit more like a news report of the Philae descent happening. Like, probably maybe the most removed musically from actually feeling like I was on the spacecraft, but rather I felt like I was on the bench side rooting. I bring back really, really strongly, I know me and Matt are probably going to disagree here, but yeah. I bring uh, back that... Um, uh, control room feel, which to me is really just as intense. It's just it just removes the you're there. Instead, it's you're watching the data on the screen. You're or maybe you're gathering in bars to you know to watch it go down over a beer. Sure, everyone's invested. It's just like there's a screen or a filter from the actual physical danger, and I think that's a result of the sound effects. And for me, for whatever reason, <laughs> I did feel and you predicted it. Steve, I did feel like I was there. I was in the 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 probe i guess we can call it as it was descending and and i can't ex really even explain why after a while it just it was something that connected on a level that i was not expecting actually that steve is an excellent way of explaining i'm, I'm on the same page as you that there is a filter there and i've been feeling that almost uh Great. You tell me that out. me and Matt have been disagreeing with you only for us to come around and you find that I've actually been agreeing with you? But I've, I've started feeling this. Is that what the this. day on Crash Chords is like? <laughs> oh, I, 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 was, I was feeling this much earlier. Specifically, Albedo and the kind of techie pop filter that was on top of everything feels like that same sort of filter that it is removing me from physically being there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you you are retroactively explaining my feelings. Yeah, this is so definitely a little bit of a, a circular way to go about this track. But I will come around in the end simply to say that it works because of its audience. And I think the audience is very heavily... I don't want to say this with too much confidence, but I think it should include everyone from adult to child alike. In which case, I think this is exactly as on the nose as it needs to be for the child who might get interested in space travel just from this particular scene being portrayed. All you have to do is explain to the kid there's a lander, it's trying to land, we hope it lands successfully, and it might not, you never know. These things can go wrong. It's a good learning experience, and everything from even the cheesy little clarinet scale descent may come across as a little silly to a, a, a learned audience, but that stuff works. All it has to do is portray descent. Although actually at the very end there was a little bit of ascent. No, I noticed that the scales actually ascended and then there was like maybe the last firing of the engines just to break the fall. I mean, the, the gravity is so low, it's really more about control than fighting the gravity at this point. Track 10, Mission Accompli. Uh, Rosetta's Walsh, in, in parenthesis. And of course, I guess the reason for choosing, choosing the French pronunciation there is because French is one of the uh, international languages of, well, the ESA languages, alongside English, because both are used... Uh, Throttle. Pretty interchangeable. Yeah, yeah. throttle and, Fran and French is considered pretty easy to learn. 
this track. <laughs> remember when I said before that one of the tracks was predictable? That's only if this that is true, but not nearly as predictable as this. So, and this is the success theme. This is the cel- celebratory fanfare, but with no confetti. Um, you know, it's it's definitely the most on the nose track as far as title and what it conveys. This is the success of the landing of Philae's descent and or the mission up to this point. Now I'm going to go really nerd right here because this is I'm just going to explain it this way. Star Wars A New Hope at the medal ceremony at the end. Really epic, really awesome music. For everybody but Chewie because he didn't get a medal. That's okay. Chewie, how are you going to put it around Chewie's neck? He's huge. He'd have to like kneel down or something like that. But that's besides the point. They can't afford a stool. No, it's space. They're rebels. They barely were able to get the medals. Anyway, Rebels. that scene was awesome. And honestly, I still thoroughly enjoy it, even though I've probably seen Star Wars over 100 times at this point. Are you not? No exaggeration there? That's a legit number? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm easily there. Maybe over. Yeah, seriously. I don't know if I've seen it 100 times. But anyway. anyway sidetracking. That scene sets up the disappointment of episode one and the end. But they have this big parade. And everybody hated that movie, or at least they should, because that movie was not good. I I strongly disliked it. But that scene at the end was trying to mirror A New Hope's finale with, you know, the CGI frog people walking up to one another and handing a giant glowing ball, which makes absolutely no sense in context of the the movie itself, because what's up with the ball? That was a pale comparison to how awesome A New Hope's finale was. A New Hope's... Mission accomplished was. And that's what I feel about this track. This is a pale comparison to the epic fanfare of, of this um, uh, enormous 10-year journey should really have. It was a fanfare. It was a celebration. We did what we set out to do. But it seemed far more subdued than what I, I think it might deserve. I don't think subdued is the word. Actually, it's actually exaggerated. Uh, actually, I do think it's subdued comparatively, and there's a reason. So I will turn this ship around a little bit. Ah, uh, waka waka. Um, I think that... Come with the jokes. Again, I'm just a regular comedian. Um, I'm not. Um, You're, he's a regular <laughs> comedian. Regular right. comedian. Not a no, supernatural regular. one. I like, um, I like how you completely backtrack. I'm oh, a regular absolutely. comedian. I'm not. No, no. Um, I think that this is downplayed because it was only a partial success because mission's not over yet. They're not done. And we got Parahelion right around the corner of track 11, which will help solidify my explanation. While I agree from an, a musical standpoint where John's coming from, I think this, again, this kind of muted success is intentional because we're only sort of celebrating here. We didn't, like, the, the, the mission is a success, but we're not done yet. There are more things for the mission to accomplish. And right. also, I'm a little unclear as to the extent that Vangelis incorporated the uh, the large failure, I guess, of Philae. Because remember, Philae landed, and I think he really wanted to send that across, but it also was only really sending things back for two days. Remember what I said in the beginning yeah. about it landed in a crevice. It landed sort of on its side. So it was like this deep pocket on the comet, and it couldn't really receive a lot of light toward its solar panels. So it had this thing where it was receiving only enough light to charge its battery for a little bit, and you get to talk to it for a little bit, and then it's going to drain the more right. and more you use it. And so it was ultimately a little bit of a failure. But a little less thing, just the bat filet. In like the last hurrah of, of Rosetta, it was taking some final pictures of uh, of the comet and actually it found filet. It took a picture 
of the little probe that it had sent off toward the comet, and it managed to actually find it in the last few days, kind of like reuniting at the last <laughs> moment. Very sweet. So uh, anyway, that's half failure, half success, whatever. Point is, they were at least, I assume this is the celebration over that component of the mission, right. and that the landing itself was at least a success, and we did learn a little bit from Philae. Um, but I am inclined to agree with John that well, agree and both disagree because you said that it, you know this is this is the track that pales in comparison to the experience, I guess, of the last track or maybe of of the experience as a whole. I think it's actually a little bit of an exaggeration, and maybe that's my problem. Is that once again, it's kind of overselling it a little bit. I mean, first of all, the fact that this is a waltz and the fact you feel it in three, this dun 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 dun, you know, it sticks in your head the melody. It's probably going to be there for a few days, as a result, because. I don't know, there's just something about 3-4. It's really easy for melodies to stick with you. And it's like the most patriotic yet. You could honestly set any national anthem lyrics to this for any country. I, I, I mean, you could make up your own lyrics to an imaginary country and it would work. If I could pin it down, maybe there's just a slight little bit of a Germanic touch in the writing. But honestly, that's true for most anthems for whatever reason. I don't know. Just it's with the form that countries all around the world decided to follow when they were writing anthems. But... It's like that and yet squared. It's so much of that. And I don't think, I think in the process of exaggerating it, I do feel a little bit less. Like, when you really consider the celebration, it's probably a bunch of scientists in a room. I mean, they're happy, of course. You've never seen a, a happy person until you've seen a scientist uh, at their control panel right mm -hmm. after their mission has been a success. But it's probably more like a catered lunch. You know, it's, it's not the end of Star Wars, but it's, it is our equivalent, I guess. It's just that this made it seem a little bit cartoonish. and I, that, I would agree with that. I think that, that was my problem. I think that's what I meant by it being super on the nose, is it, it did feel kind of cartoony, which, you know, doesn't unravel John's description, I suppose. But when we move on to Perihelion, which is next, which Steve is going to give us the definition in a moment, track 11, this is where we go back to kind of a sense of adventure, but it's a little different here. But Steve, first indulge us, what is a perihelion? Perihelion is the point in the orbit of a planet, asteroid, or comet, in which it is closest to the sun. Uh, I believe it's the opposite of, of aphelion, I think that's the other term, where of course it's the farthest away, but perihelion is the closest, and of course that means it's going to be getting more heat than any other day of its or eons of orbiting. And that's that can be a pretty violent experience for both Comet and certainly spacecraft. And this track definitely is one of the more aggressive sounding tracks on the album. I think that's reflecting this phenomena pretty well. And that's something that there's been no shortage of, I feel like, on this record, is of music reflecting uh, space and space-related phenomena. It's when I think we get more human that we kind of get a ubiquity, whereas when we're dealing with Space, which we've said, I challenge listeners to count how many times we've said, and then let us know in the comments. Space, um, space, space. space. Um, a few more. Uh, that's where we really kind of branch out. Well, if, if you want to humanize this, I felt like this track was trying its best to be cantankerous. That's the word I want to use I for I said it. aggressive, you said cantankerous. Mm. It's because its accents are all over the place and usually abrasive. It's, it's primarily because there's longish builds. Longish, not really like full fledged, like long sweeping pieces, but the builds reach peaks and then immediately have attack cutoffs. 
but you can't really predict how they're going to work. Sometimes the attacks are multi-stage attacks where it, it drops down, it drops down again very rapidly, and this is this is almost like a free-falling sensation. Or sometimes you get these builds that kind of have a, a little bit of a hitch in the restart, almost uh, a bubbling effect, like, oh, that bubble was going to pop, but it had that moment of solidity and got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger before it did, in fact, just burst on you. This... This is, it's a little bit mean. And I like that it's a little bit mean. I like that it's a little bit rude because it doesn't allow you to just, you know, immerse and flow with it. It's cantankerous. I think it just plays off of volume a lot. And it's the loud bass synth, very resonant. And of course, a lot of tritone integration is another uh, thing that adds the drama. Um, but physical drama on top of it all. That's the, the volume is just this physical pounding bump. Bump, 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 you know, and again, we've heard it to some extent before in lots of other media, I'm sure. Uh, but this did bring me back more to the reality of the experience, I guess, especially when you consider that this is the most violent act on the whole album, the perihelion, all that outgassing, and I almost pictured that there were moments here that the that the that Rosetta was trying to like hide behind the comet in order to escape the heat of the sun. Although I'm sure it didn't, it wasn't that serious because I think even the perihelion of this comet is still farther away than Earth's orbit. So it's not really close to the sun, but it's as close as this particular comet is going to get. And for the speed that it's traveling and for its consistency, it's still very violent. Uh, but there are moments where it seems like Rosetta is far enough away from the comet that it doesn't that it's not in immediate danger and i actually read up about this experience which took place took place in 2015 that when it was going through the perihelion they did have to move rosetta away because it was getting so violent right around the comet and i think that's reflected in around the 150 mark because we get this eye of the storm moment where the whole song calms down and we get you know our synth tone that's been our backbone for a lot of the record and we, it becomes more mellow for almost a full minute or so. And it, I think that moment in the track is meant to reflect what Steve just described. And it was an immediate cool off of all the contention mm -hmm. that was going on. Very, like, it was unforeseen, but it was so immersive for the mm -hmm. piece itself. It's the main reason why this track, Perihelion, is my favorite on the album. Hmm. Um and at six and a half minutes, it's actually the longest as well. It's the biggest chunk of what's going on right here as far as time investment goes. So for me to be able to go, okay, sitting a minute doing basically nothing comparatively is actually as immersive as like the conflict, as the, the bubble pops and the crevices and the draws and everything like that, the, the builds and attacks, builds and attacks of the previous piece. It's it's just so enticing for me to be able to really feel like this 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 back and forth and this real like as I said before dangerous but not really personal. I'm still not getting fear or anything like that. I still don't really see an emotional investment. And I wanted to bring that up before I give Steve the mic. Hmm. <laughs> Because he really wants to butt in, I, I, I feel like the the sort of like crystallized non personal destruction going on right here. Well, I only wanted to butt in to say that it's it. I don't think this is my favorite track. It may have had one of my favorite moments, but that moment may be my favorite only because it's one of 
the only moments. You know, for most of this album, it's been a lot of like when we give timestamps to when the, the process of something begins to take place. It's not like a specific moment being like, ah, that 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 boop, you know, like we heard back in <laughs> Snooze, you know, those final little guitar, those are moments, right? And so many moments in that album. This is mostly not about moments until four minutes and 40 seconds when you have that eruption of the electric guitar this is of course after that little calm section and suddenly we're back to full danger i i assume that this is when uh, rosetta went back in for another approach just to take another risk and i guess that was the most dangerous of the lot because vangelis decided that that moment needed an electric guitar and a a at least a synthesized electric guitar or something that sounds so much like it. And that's just an oddball for this album, considering the palette al- of al- instruments we've had. It almost made me laugh, it honestly. Did. It really did. Because it just seems so flashy. Yeah. I have and yet it's my favorite because it is a moment. That's yeah, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. I have a reason for it, and I think this is completely incorrect, but I'm going to explain it anyway. <laughs> um, we did. You did speak that uh, Filet was discovered before the comet left us. Maybe that's filet. Maybe that little celebration. Maybe maybe that's the maybe it is. I don't think that happened during Pillar. Put it in the realm of possibility. Um, But you know, it it was so freaking cool though to get that little accent. It was such an extra little unforeseen layer of texture. I don't think that it was odd or anything like that. I don't think that it was like out of left field i just think it was a nice beautiful extra little effort in the the texture itself that just overall added even in hindsight looking at the previous stuff i like that the previous part of the track the first section of conflict did not have that guitar work and that it did show up so late in the piece itself. Yep. And that's basically the climax, not just for the track, but for the album. Uh, because after that, at 5 minutes and 9 seconds, it starts to, we start to pull away again. And this is for the final time. I assume this is post-perihelion. We're now moving away from the sun. Things will only get less violent from here on out. There's a um, wind-down to the track that I actually really like because it doesn't, it doesn't just fade out like other tr- tracks have. There is this kind of deconstruction of what had been happening. Yeah, it like lifts away you know, the piano and wisps of down to piano i mean and, and just wisps of things stick around distant chimes as we move away from the sun perhaps it wouldn't be so dramatic because of course we're, we're moving at, at a steady pace away from the sun so it's not like you're just suddenly not there anymore you know it's gotta it's gotta take time uh so it's probably still gonna be violent for a while but uh whatever music music you need to you know compress these these events track 12 elegy this track does portray the finale of the mission in some ways like sort of the the final hurrah there's with a... with what's going on soft string lamentation sort of a a uh, last hurrah where uh, the the refrain of it the actual melody of it sort of ends and then reswells and ends and reswells it's that it's that receding effect uh, you're seeing your ship sailing away without you and you no longer can interact with it it's no longer your home or your your area of of work or whatever i get that sense a little but i don't think this is like the last hurrah really i think this is definitely post content like this is yeah it's just it's just the pullback it's not the last hurrah it's done the, hoor- the hurrah was per- i have i have a term for this when i and i can relate this is actually a pretty good 
um, representation of a feeling that I experience that I call post awesome depression. And as goofy as the name is, it's this uh, post awesome depression for me is when I do a really big event or I DJ a whole weekend of like a festival. You have this really great experience for a condensed amount of time, mm -hmm. and then it's over. That's it. It's done until yeah. next year, maybe. But it's done. And I think this is a post-awesome depression kind of thing. It's this idea of these scientists just accomplished something humongous. It's over. And this represents it being over. Which is and, why it becomes... And there's a sadness that's not necessarily always depressing. But there's definitely a sadness, a somberness to this because you've worked so hard on something. And now you have to sit with it being finished. Which is why I think that maybe Elegy is the most likely candidate for the track to actually say goodbye to Philae. Yeah. Like, maybe... Because, again, we don't know the exact, the exact time frame in which Vangelis wrote this music. Mm -hmm. That, you know, maybe he was writing the track about uh, Philae's success before he knew that it wasn't going to be a success for that right. long. And uh, maybe this is the track that he threw in for that. Or perhaps it's the, the elegy for Rosetta as a whole because yeah. it's, you know, wasn't supposed to be a, a terribly long mission. It was, uh, it was about two years from 2014 to 2016. So perhaps we, we've just jumped a whole year in time. The Parahesian uh, experience was 2015. So, you know, huge gaps of time between here, which we can't really uh, make sense of perhaps. But still, I, I do think that his approach was uh, fairly appropriate considering he transformed it into a kind of religious experience. You know, there's almost something liturgical about this piece despite it having no lyrics. It's all in those chord progressions that bring to mind many 17th and 18th century composers. Uh, just first of all, the fact that uh, the main feature of this track is that organ and also a vocal blend both seem to be happening at once. Uh, it's something actually kind of similar again on most keyboards, I imagine. But when Vangelis does it, it always has some sort of specific flair. I think, going back to Matt's description of post-awesomeness, uh, um, I've actually heard the term a happiness hangover. Yeah, it's a similar concept. Which is actually, I think it's actually part of the National Depression Helpline mm -hmm. thing. Um, it's it's the, the feeling of, okay, the adrenaline rush and the endocrine rush is gone. I could see that here. I could see it's those rushes gone. Yeah. It's not. It's not quite a crash, though. Well, this yeah. is this is a slow fade out. Well, because I think of how paced the track is, and in a moment it feels like it's wandering. It's kind of meandering. It's that idea of the haze you're in. If you if you're coming off of something that was really great, and you're you're lacking those the adrenaline, you do kind of glaze over and kind of wander. Think pre-coffee morning. This idea of kind of wandering through a haze and just kind of going through the motions because the exciting part's over. And I think this song really uh, um, ex exemplifies that. And that's what's most exciting to me about it is is that. I don't know about exciting. Yeah. Well, not, okay. It is the, an elegy. Enticing? enticing is a better word. The song itself is not exciting, but I get... Oh, it's, it's, it's similar in the same fact that sunlight made me feel something deeper inside. This does the same thing. I can relate it to me personally as well as understanding what it relates to in the arc of this record. I think the only problem that happened where I was a little bit more in, I guess, John's usual front with this album is because I just did not know specifically whether it was referring to Philae or Rosetta. And also because knowing the history that Rosetta's final approach was also fairly violent in many ways, I I should have experienced something like that for Rosetta in, in its final approach and where we got all the the final data that actually we were supposed to get from from uh, Philae, but we eventually got from Rosetta, in which case I feel like that was the moment that I really needed 
uh, in order to experience elegy properly, but instead perihelion was that moment, which seemed weird. Well, I think for me, because I'm relating elegy more personally, I can kind of circumvent that, but I see where you're coming from in an album perspective. That said, though, I think track 13, Return to the Void, though not as violent, should, at least to me, satisfy that you're returning to the void. Rosette is returning to the void, and then gone. Then let's use that as a jumping point uh, for that track. Actually, I don't, not, not Rosetta, the Comet. And this is something I want to bring up before we True. continue along. Okay. I don't think Rosetta, the album, is about Rosetta. It's about the comet from Rosetta's perspective. Exactly. You're and this is Rosetta watching the comet leave. But it doesn't. No, it doesn't do that. Remember, that's not the way it crashed into the comet. Yes, I know, but we're romanticizing it, all right? Fair enough. Uh, I mean, look at it. The, go from my point of view. We're romanticizing it. So much of this is romanticized because, well, it's awe-inspiring just the concept of what's going on right here in real life. Which is why I just want to modify your interpretation of this album. It's not simply the comet through Rosetta's perspective. I think this is one of those albums where we change perspective. We changed perspective multiple times, and that's what the whole fir- uh, the first act was all about. There were some tracks. There were some tracks in the first act that I think were more about the deep past history of the comet. Obviously, Rosetta wasn't there for that, and their star stuff and all that. And I think there were other tracks that were a little bit more present day minded. Sometimes just a day in the life of the comet in the present day, and then some of it is directly through the lens of Rosetta. And so, in that case, when we go to Return to the Void, I think you had the right idea initially in that this is the comet drifting away. But of course, Rosetta is not there for that, which means Elegy probably, probably is about Rosetta. Actually, I would say that the electric guitar in Perihelion might have been the death of Rosetta. Maybe. That Maybe. actually, I think, might have worked. We might be over, you know... I, I, I don't know. I read what I read about the Perihelion experience. I don't. I think that was a, a good year before it actually uh, crashed. But well, time is relative yeah. here. Time I is think. very relative. Like I think that's the idea. Shut up. <laughs> but, but my point, but okay, back... We're going to go on Return to the Void. Return <laughs> to the Void. It's an interesting title and an interesting setup because, of course, I like the idea that the, that the, the comet is going back to the state that it was in for most of its history. I mean, the time in which it actually had a a human presence or a human-built presence floating around it, learning secrets from it, is a magical, magical moment. And now, all of a sudden, it's back to being at least as much of a mystery as whatever we didn't get from that experience. There might be more to get there. There almost definitely is much more to get there. But we're not going to know about that. Probably not for quite some time. But I think also what's important to... Uh, point out here is this track reminds me and intentionally so I think of track two star stuff because we are going back to that perspective Mm -hmm. of just the comet but the flip on everything that's going on right here is uh, to me like the best part of the finale that okay arrival might have been the actual opener uh-huh. But Star Stuff, I believe, like, I think we're all in, a, in agreement that it kind of is the story opener. It's a yeah. real, I think like, the two of them together maybe. To some degree, I even feel that that was actually track three, Infinitude. Like, that that was starting to reveal the, the mysteries here and there. Everything else is just experience, and then that's the point in which we start to get curious. That's the story, the beginning of the story. Well, the beginning of the actual specifics of the story. But I right. feel like Star Stuff, because... We're all made of star stuff, and this is star stuff that we're exploring right here. Star stuff was the first actual personification of the comet, the first actual presentation of the comet. So now we're getting the comet leaving. And to have them 
sound wise, it, like the actual caliber of 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 what's being played right here, feel like such an inverse to the sharp, piercing pieces that we were getting in Star Stuff. Here, it feels like drops. It still feels like it has that kind of crystal effect, but it feels more open. It's it's more of a whoop to everything as opposed to a hard edge. If it's almost like a Doppler effect going on. If Star Stuff was the initial distant approach, but initial distant approach of the comet, here is the receding. And I feel like it, it is in some ways sort of musically emulating the Doppler effect, being the close-up into actual story to the the wave goodbye as it, it leaves our solar system. I, I'm inclined to agree with John. I think, for me, the, the POV is a little different because I feel like I'm the one moving in those directions. But that said, it's conveying the same exact thing. And I think it's interesting that Return to the Void seems to circle back to Star Stuff. But again, since we're saying that's like the true introduction, it does make sense and makes this album's arc kind of flow really well. Um, that said, musically, you know, I like the track. I don't think it really did anything wholly new for the album. I think it just, it was almost like a reprise of stuff we'd heard before throughout the record uh, put together in a bit of a different way. I disagree a lot with that. In fact, this, <laughs> all right, we can't seem to find common ground on a lot of here, but I, I guess I, I really enjoyed this as a finale because I think that this track added so much more mystery than actually the rest of the album was capable of giving us. You know, you get shades of things here and there, but I feel like it never quite committed because it always kind of kept, it rode the safe line on so many of those tracks. This track is the most mysterious of the lot, and I feel like that it is a really, that's a sweet way to end, I guess, in my view of the world, just because I like the idea that the story is never completely told. And in this case, of course, the story is not completely told. We didn't learn everything. We didn't answer all the secrets of the universe. We're glad about what we experienced, but to go back to your, like, post-awesome depression thing, it's more wrapped up in this track than it, than it is in Elegy because I love those that mysterious feeling that I don't... I, I think even Star Stuff wasn't quite able to uh, deliver us because Star Stuff was just the formation of the universe and those natural processes without the humans to even be curious yet. And here we have curiosity and we've been tantalized. We've been tantalized by sending that spacecraft out to do its job, and it did, and now that's it for the foreseeable future until we have another mission of the same kind. We know how long it takes for us to put these missions together. So to me, this was a, a, a beautiful finale. I mean, I would agree that I think 12 and 13 together sum up that post-awesome depression. And again, I never said that this was a bad track by any means. I think that just musically, it's not... It, there was a, a great amount of stuff I'd heard before. I don't. I do agree that as far as structurally and flow-wise, there was a lot of mystery here because, you know, I mean, even with the title Return to the Void, there's a sense of mystery just in the title. When we have these discrepancies, it's usually because we're focusing on different things. Right. If you're talking about the texture of the track, sure, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I'm talking about more of the, the musical, the chord progressions right. and that sort. The composition felt kind of new for the album. Okay, yeah, and I could agree with that. There we are. I'm right, John. I, can't, I forget that John picked the album. Right. I'm inclined to make Steve go first because it's Vangelis. No, don't make him go first. I think I think Matt should go first. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> um, so I mean, all right. Well, let's let's take this for what 
it is because I find, and it's no secret to our listeners, that with instrumental albums, especially things of this magnitude, I sometimes struggle. And I felt with this album, especially upon the first couple of listens, I did struggle to wrap my brain around it. And not because it's hard to understand, but it's just because I didn't know quite what to do with it. I find, I want to kind of compare it to a movie to see if I can wrap my head around it. I want to compare it to Requiem for a Dream just for a moment. Only because Requiem for a Dream is a movie that is fantastic, but I only need to see it once. That movie is so horribly depressing and so impactful that I never need to see it again. I had shades of that with this album. I feel like certain tracks I might have gone back to, but as a whole, the album told its tale. I was fascinated and wrapped up in it, but I'd be quicker to go to the actual story of the Rosetta and this comet than this album again. And so I feel like I got everything that I needed from it, so I don't know what purpose it serves beyond that. And that's the same thing with a movie when, or any form of media. If a form of media serves its purpose and you feel like you have nothing else to gain from it, what do you do with it? And that's my big struggle with this album. I think that there are definitely tracks and moments for sure that I will go back to. I mean, Sunlight for sure I'll go back to just for that two-minute moment, that moment that gives me chills every time I hear it. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. But I think as an album as a whole, as a, you know, the arc and the theme and all of that, it's just not something I would revisit a lot. Now, as far as Vangelis, the Vangelis, that Steve has talked up. This is definitely not on par with Albedo. I still think that's one of his best works. And I've heard a few of his albums. Of course, I know those soundtracks like Chariots of Fire, as we talked about in Blade Runner. But I also don't want to make this just a comparison because we try not to do that. You know, even with bands that we were really into, we try not to just make it a frank comparison of previous work. But I mean, even when Steve talked at length about the Decemberist record, there was a lot of comparative moments in his wrap-up for that because it's hard to forget familiarity with something that you're really connected to. Um, that said, I'm not as die-hard a fan as Evangelist as Steve is. Um, but what this album absolutely accomplishes perfectly for me from track to track is an experience in space with wondrous things that seem almost not possible. And the almost not possible is conveyed. And I think that kind of mystery and awe is impressive on a record. Um, I think that, again, the moments where I felt strongest were way stronger than any other emotional connection I had on a record in a long while. And so for that, of course, and then, you know, virtuosity is just it speaks for itself he is a phenomenal composer who does great work with instrumentation that said i cannot ignore some of the things that were very on the nose and even predictable if those moments uh that were obvious or that stood out to me hadn't happened this would be a five-star record hands down and it's not for me a five-star record but when we get to the fours also i'm I'm, I'm struggling to figure out where in the fours it lies. Because, again, it's not something I'm going to come back to. It's not even something I'd say that I loved. I enjoyed it, for sure. And again, I was on for the ride for most of it. There were very few moments where it took me out of it. Um, I'm mostly stalling now to figure out a rating. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I can tell that. <laughs> but I don't know. I think that my my biggest struggle here is when we're dealing with an artist who is 
um, so phenomenally impressive. I don't want to hurt it just because I was pulled out of moments because that not is not always the record's fault. Sometimes that's mine. Um, so I think this this sits firmly for me at a four point two five. I don't I don't think it's upper upper echelon for me because I I just did still come out of it at certain points, but but it's still a very tight record and something I would highly recommend for anyone who's a fan of electronic instruments, space, or both. Well, first I'll touch on the. The fact that you brought up, you know, whether it's on par with Albedo, I, I really tried to avoid that, you know, during sure. this listen. I, I didn't really think it was real. I worried that I was going to do that, right. of course, because I know, I've known that album since birth and I hold it in such a pedestal. And yes, objectively, when you get to the end of this, it's easy to tell that this is not nearly as experimental. Um, it was also a very abstract album, and I guess because when you write an abstract album, you open a lot of doors for your writing process. This was very clear-cut, mm-hmm. knew exactly what he was doing, and it is true that the I, I definitely agreed with you when it came to you know whether you would go back to this record and and the fact that you would probably prefer to just go read up on the story of Rosetta. I I am probably in the similar department there. And then you go back to that whole commodity discussion that we had and the purpose of the record. And I do believe that this is not necessary. It, it's meant as a tribute. And when you were talking, you really got me thinking about the purpose of a tribute. This is a tribute to a specific mission. Just in a matter of we've had lots of different tributes that artists have done. Sometimes they're just songs that they do for other artists that they admire for specific events. And I guess it's true that for the most part, that kind of work, that caliber material is not seen in the same league as the artist's canon work. Like, that's like the side projects, the stuff that was just sort of done because they felt they needed to do it, but it, that's not really up there with the stuff they want to be remembered for, but it's something they felt they had to do as an artist. I, I, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of a narrow view. You know, if you care about something, you will write a tribute for it, and you will put your all into it. And I think that I don't know if his all went into this, only because I have a sense of what his all is, but I do believe that it is an incredible success. And I think that part of his goal, I think, in it being a tribute, is that it has a much broader audience than simply people who like experimental electronica. And that audience is all people who all of people who are interested in space, all people who are interested in this particular mission. From adult to kid alike. And I think we're leaving that out. That Some of this stuff may be a little bit cheesy on purpose. Because it's true that when I listen to Albedo, even parts of it may only sound cheesy because we recognize sounds that are no longer used. But I think that some of the cheesiness here that we we have been calling cheesy may meant to maybe just to be on the nose, as on the nose as possible, so that way a kid will connect it. And that they will get into space as a result. Yes, but you've often said when we review anything that has to do with children's music that you expect intelligent children to go that extra mile and or to, can be introduced in a different way. I think this is for intelligent children. Yeah, I'm, no, uh, I'm totally, I'm totally on. All right. I'll defend him on this one. I mean, I just feel like some of the oversimplification in moments is 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 too much hand feeding hand to mouth. I think that you're. You're viewing that as an adult, and Fair I think enough. you're having a hard time making that extension I toward will, childhood, and I, that there is a science to do this toward ch- children. That you don't completely write something so abstract they're going to be, they're going to question it, you know. But that they're at least going to draw connections too, and that can be very powerful. And there's also the fact that you probably are making the connection of it being cheesy and kind of overplayed because 
it was used to great effect in your own childhood. Probably. I would say that I will accept there's a certain amount of cynicism in my review and perspective. I would absolutely openly admit that. I simply say that there's a place for Albedo, and there's a place for this album. Albedo was very useful to me as a childhood. I think it, it, it was, it, my imagination went wild. This is less about the imagination going wild and simply about it being a, uh, a connect-the-dots kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Read up in the story, follow the album. Yeah. And there was a lot of publicity surrounding both uh, Philae and Rosetta. There was a cartoon that actually came around in Europe, uh, a little comic strip about Philae's, all of his little uh, ex- exploits, and it was, it was cute. I forget, I don't remember the, the exact name of that particular cartoon, but it exists, it's out there. And, uh, yeah, they had a really good public relations campaign. I'm glad that Vangelis opted to step in on this. Well, I guess when I got to the end of this album, obviously it's like, you know, it's like watching the Titanic. You know the ship is going to sink. You know (laughs) the end result of this particular excursion. So it is true that I did not get... Nothing new was revealed to me. Nothing really should have been, except that musically I was... Curious, as always, to see where Vangelis would take this. I did feel like, especially by Return of the Void, like after everything had gone by, after those synths and chimes and reverb and echo had just boiled down to that, and then even when they start leaving, it's almost like everything that happened was a kind of dream, just because that moment is so magical that you actually got to explore explore this mysterious object, which, you know, if it weren't for this tremendous amount of effort, you never would have known anything more about other than what we already knew about from telescopes. And uh, we got to experience that. And I was very, I think that was probably the most clever thing that he did on this record. It is only, you know, one extra layer. And I guess when it comes down to the overall experience of this record uh, and, and what I take away from it, I probably will be experiencing it in somewhat the same fashion as you, Matt. I listened to it once. I may go back to it just from time to time, but I also like to see what he does for other missions, in which case uh, I am still, even now, in a state of deep debate over this, this tribute option uh, and whether it, sh- it should be canonized or not. I guess now that I've seen it, yeah, now it's for the next generation of people who want to, uh, who are interested in Rosetta and Philae. So, yeah, musically... I think this has achieved the four in terms of accomplishing everything it set out to achieve. I don't think it went much further. And that's the thing. That's the reason why, despite, you know, kind of disagreeing with you on that one particular notion, I think that when it comes to my rating, yes, my rating is where I am all Steve wrapped up. My, <laughs> ra- my rating is where I can't I- exceed certain things, despite whether, you know, eh, for children or for adult or like, I, I know what I know what incrementation is is necessary in my experience and i i guess that was not experienced here so to me this really is just it stops at the four and it doesn't really go a notch above that it accomplished everything it set out to achieve but that's about it i don't know how much more i actually have to add <laughs> that's true we were pretty verbose okay i'll say i'll just say where i really am differentiating from you guys and it's primarily story actually is there it's it it is sort of romanticized it actually reminds me of the xkcd uh thing that they did over 12 hours and 55 minutes which was the the time from launch to land of the fillet he wrote panels for that webcomic and it changed over that time it's sort of like a flip book and it kind of did the point of view of rosetta and fillet on and and i think a couple other characters landing on there and how epic that was because 
Uh, and if anybody hasn't actually read XKCD, it's a funny satire that's an extremely smart webcomic. Incredibly yep. well done. Don't that be has, put off. That is not about animation at all, and it's only about the content. It's stick figures. It's yeah. all about the words. Yeah. And sometimes you actually have to mouse over the, the picture itself and see what it's called to really get the joke. Um, anyway, it was endearing. Mm-hmm. It was a simple webcomic. It was really imaginative for what it was doing, and it was just an enjoyment thing when you watch it, especially when you watch it now, not over 13 hours. Um, but it did exactly what I would kind of want it to do. It told a really simple but endearing story of human accomplishment. And that's what this album did, and that's something I don't think I've really heard before. In such the broadest of terms, yes, we've heard stories about people who have done something. Yeah, Yeah, overcoming depression, overcoming anger and loss and love and love loss. This is about human accomplishment as as a whole, as a race. This is significantly grander, and I think it accomplishes a sort of species moment. It's uniting, yeah. I can definitely see that. It may not be, you know... The, the sort of fanfare that is us wormholing to another galaxy or something like ridiculously outside the realm of mortal accomplishment. But it is something significant in and of itself. This is this is on par truly with, you know, the actual first lunar landing or every subsequent one since then. This is on par with people living in space. This is on par with us breaking free from Earth, from terra firma and doing something that as far as we know, no other thing, not even species, not even like conscious mind, but no other thing truly can do, which is intelligently do something to a different celestial body. I'm, I, I just want to interrupt to say, I, I'm in full ag- agreement that that is a incredibly noble goal. And I think that were it for my walking away from this album feeling like I was completely in connected and in tune with that particular thing right there, then yeah, I, I would be on board. And that's where my disagreement starts funneling back in. Because the music, I think it accomplished that. But I think it accomplished that the way XKCD does with their stick figures. It's yes, just enough. It's... Exactly. It's just enough to get the point across. It's just enough intelligence and it's just enough entertainment to really be above the rest, to really get it and be impactful, but in a very quiet way. It doesn't hit me and and touch me personally. Like That was my big issue. I couldn't connect with it personally. But I really do feel like in some ways, I was in the control room, at least, watching the journey. Maybe not the scientists, the astronomers, mission control, the physicists, or any of the individuals involved with it. But it really did give me a bit of a bird's eye view on what they were doing, what was going on, the sort of the sort of mechanics and, and maybe not fear, but the, the potential that was there. It was a lot of projecting. Yeah. I think it was a lot of projecting based on what I knew of the mission. And that's something that you have to actually deal with this. And that's that's another negative, actually, that you really do have to project the knowledge of the mission on top of this to hit that height. That's true. Otherwise, it's just a really cool sort of soundtrack to Cosmos. It's a space opera without yeah, that. Yeah. It's, it's without, Cosmos. Without, yeah. it's, it's a documentary. It's Cosmos again. 
Yeah, in, I, in many I'm ways glad you brought that. back the documentary thing. I think that's actually more where this st- sits, considering it doesn't have the specific narrative. So without the visuals and everything like that, I don't know if the documentary would have hit or miss, but I think the score would work so well in imparting that connection of making you enjoy information. So for that, I will bump it above Steve, but I'm right there with Matt, 4.25. It does something on the intelligence level that just does keep it above a four for me. Yeah, it's <laughs> I'm a four with ma- with mounds of respect yeah. <laughs> for the things you brought up. Uh, let's go into a topic. It's going to be a short topic just because... It's an obvious topic. We never really get to talk about this on, on, a, on a grand scale, and it's uh, this is as good of an opportunity to do it as any. Space, the final frontier. <laughs> womp womp. I, music, all right. It's, it's not too long, I guess, in, our, in human history that this has been a subject of musical development, or even in literature, honestly. Science fiction is such a new genre. Right, comparatively. Um, like, yeah. Because of the way we visualize it, at right, least. Yeah, yeah. The, it's only, you can only have science fiction based on the more you know. So the more we know as a race, then we can write media off it and come up with different concepts that we simply couldn't think of before we knew what we know now. Right. And so that got abstractly applied to music as well. And then as a result of, well, the media that we've all been exposed to, I feel like we have a few preconceptions of uh, what space-oriented music is supposed to be. And we always reference it on this show, being like, that sounds spacey. Sometimes we literally just mean, hey, it sounds spacious. Yeah. Right, but I do think, in in some removed sense, we're connecting it to some stray piece of media that really affected us in the past. Well, and I think it starts with what you said with science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars. For me, the most impactful thing of the modern era, Mass Effect, which is a trilogy of games that really defined what Quartet. space and quartet. Well, the new one's really great. Doesn't count. So- I'm talking about the trilogy. Um, uh, created perceptions for me. But that said, also I think. There's there's some comedy and tongue-in-cheek inherent with that, too. I mean, one of the earliest space songs that I can remember early for me in the 90s that really kind of hit a chord on a comedic level was a song called Space Lord by Monster Magnet. Because it was just a very... That sounds silly. <laughs> it was a very goofy, kind of over-the-top song about a space lord coming to take over the earth. And it was, you know, done by this, you know, alt-rock band at the time... Guess you could argue that they were possibly metal, but you know that was an experience with space that's very different from like what we experienced here today. It was fun and silly, and it was less about space and more about singing about space. Well, a lot of the influences of space music and specifically the genre of science fiction music is that, well, the reason we have like pops and things like that, not just because. Science fiction kind of developed in many ways around the time that the synthesizer was introduced. And that's a big part of it. But as far as the general tones and the the choices of certain sounds, sonar tends to be used to do a sort of a a pop echo effect Mm -hmm. to signify vastness in space music. Or... The reason why we have zaps and laser sounds and effects is that's because that's kind of what electricity, when bare-wired, sounds like in the air. Because space, okay, technical term, it's a vacuum. There's no sound. (laughs) There technically is no sound without atmosphere. So we take the things that we associate science fiction and science and exploration and everything like that, which is computerized which is beeps and boops and sweeps and other things computer chips do that 
would you know create the ambience of a computer station or a spaceship or something like that. So that was a heavy influence on what the quote space sound has become. Well, connecting to our album today, I mean, think about the synthesizer. I mean, take Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. There are sound bites in that song that absolutely sound like a spaceship taking off. And mostly they threw them in because they knew the impact of synth sounds and that the sound effects would affect people. And I think that's really interesting because Another One Bites the Dust, for all intents and purposes, has nothing to do with space. But those sound effects definitely do. Well, see, that's perception. And perception right. is the thing that I, I was kind of getting to because I, it's it's what you bring to the table. In yeah. this case, uh, it, some people view space only through the lens of the adventure they're in, in mm-hmm. which case there's not going to be much difference between the music that you'd create for a space adventure and what you'd create for any adventure, for yeah. uh, an adventure across the continent, across the sea, right? It'd be a lot of brass, a lot of fanfare, a lot of you're going to have a hero theme, you're going to have a villain theme. They're going to see it in, in through the lens of the traditional epic, and it's going to probably bank toward that if they, if they know at least a little bit about the, the science of it they'll try to incorporate some things that hint to your setting mm-hmm. but otherwise you know for instance john williams star wars that yeah. that's not really space oriented that's true it's just very orchestral it's very orchestral it's incredibly memorable but it's more for its orchestral and compositional qualities than it really is for the space oriented qualities sure. that's more from the sound effects you know yeah. that's where you get connected to star wars and the sound effects that were created for the film but i would argue that two things one's Star Wars just happened to take place in space. Exactly. It's a fantasy. It was that, conf- that's the whole idea. Yeah. But two, and more importantly, the music was not made for space. It was made for the scenes oriented with it. Uh, a, a more, I guess, appropriate example of what you get when you marry the scenery of space and music would be uh, 2001. That's That's the one that I think would best but marry still, the two but, ideas. But that—that's a very tricky one because also that used well, it used a lot of existing music that was never written for that purpose. And I'm actually glad you brought that up mm-hmm. because that was the counterpoint I was going to address. Is consider something like Rite of Spring that was also never written to have space in mind. No. It was written as a pagan rite, you know, of, of Celtic pagans, ancient Celtic pagans going about their ritual and the sacrifices and all of that stuff. Which, to me, having seen Fantasia and having seen the, the, the scene with the dinosaurs and with the, uh, the, the, the dawning of the cosmos and everything, to me, I don't think that story about the pagan rite of spring is ever really going to get me. Like, yeah. I, I know that they've actually tried to do an original version recently. They, they didn't for a really, really long period of time after, because, of course, that was considered one of the most, a travesty of a, of a premiere performance, is that a lot of people hated the Rite of Spring right there in, in 1913. They thought it was horrible. They thought the it, it was awkward. The dancing was, the choreography was, was really, really off. And so they didn't do it for a very long time. But now it's kind of had a renaissance, and people, of course, the, the composition has become ingrained in us, probably a lot by Fantasia. And... People, I think, connect it more than anything to that than they will ever to the pagan ritual. So in which case, I, I guess his, his goal was a little bit lost, but she's was it on point. I mean, when you start transforming that opening theme, it sounds 
so ancient that it transcends anything that has to do with humanity. It, it really does sound like it is just the sounds of co the cosmos coming together. Everything that I tried to, to explain earlier on about the, the accretion disk and everything. It's just, it's coming together, but with, with no hand in the matter, with no, none of your help. And that's, I think, uh, the mark of a great composer, despite that he wasn't going for that. He wrote something so good, it has actually transcended his idea. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you talked about perceptions. I think really space, as a modern concept of how we understand it, and science fact for science fiction, is pretty close to uh, blurring lines now, especially since we have Star Trek phones. Essentially. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, some... We need tricorders. Whatever. But the, the point is, is that I think perception plays a big deal when it comes to dealing with certain aspects of music that has to do with space. I think when we say that sounds like a spacey kind of sound, we are referring to our preconceptions. Because what we just talked about with 2001 is definitely an example of something that's just orchestral, that in the context feel spacey, but on its mm. own, like I said, the main theme from 2001, I associate closely with Ric Flair the wrestler because that's where I experienced it first. Yeah. And it's, it, it's silly. Which is a travesty by itself. It's, it's, it's silly to say, but it is. It's perception and connectivity that way. That's also a very different type of science fiction film. Right. But primarily, if you're going to be doing space music, you just have to kind of observe certain tenets. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the truth. I think you just put a lot of space between notes, like literal space between notes, because, like I said, vacuum, there's not a whole lot there. So if you want to do vast, you make your pacing kind of vast. Right. If you're going to be quick about something, if you're going to do something apprehensive, well, keep it a little bit on the tinier side. Keep it a little bit on the edgier side. In that sort of a realm, when you when you have what we what I like to refer to as like crystal moments, crystal sounds, it's because they're sharp, they're edgy, and they're solid. Yeah. Just be something that is sort of indomitable at moments, and that helps you come up with the concept of planets, because well, they're pretty freaking big and they're pretty freaking thick, and it helps. Yeah. Individual characterizations of different aspects of space that just work within context of uh, music like this. And you don't think having a title that connects you to that? Oh, that really, really helped helps. today. It really yeah, helped today. Of course it helps. Well, I don't know. I guess that's probably all it needs. Like, all you have to do is connect Star Wars to the word Star Wars. Yeah. And that's what connects it. Because I think you could probably... I think that I am convinced that that soundtrack would have made any film uh, a success. Oh, I agree. Oh, yeah, no. It, 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 Williams would have... He did make so many films a success. A success. But, yeah. like, you could... I bet you could move that particular theme around to other adventure-oriented films, and those films would have been a greater at the box office I, as a result. And I, I think it would match. I would be curious to see if this experiment existed, but take two epic trilogies that we've grown up with one more so in our years but take lord of the rings movies and take the, the star wars movies if we swap the soundtracks for appropriate moments would it work because i think it would well yeah. yeah because they're extremely similar soundtracks right because peter from, jackson knows well, what the hell do, he's doing people do this all the time on youtube and, yeah. you know swap things just for the fun of it and a lot of times people are like whoa that works yeah and i'm sure you if, if that's the way it was presented it would have been thought of as working it's not that there's you know some kind of giant hand of god that steps no, in no, to say that things not. are automatically connected if it's only by marketing and once they're yeah. sold that way they're hard to separate but it, that's uh yeah this is up to the composer and actually the sound editor really in the end yeah i would agree 
All right. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, jump into our music term of the week and then continue to stay with Steve as he tells us what we're doing next week. <laughs> well, this uh, particular term is fairly easy. and I just kind of threw it out. This is more of a test for you than anything else, just to see if you Me remember. Specifically? Yeah, you, John, whenever. Just to see if you remember really some here. terms. Yeah, he didn't want to be a part of this, but tremolo. Do you remember what that is? See, I can imagine it in the context you've used it, but yeah, I'm having trouble actually thinking of a way to describe it. It helps us describe things, you know, in the future, so it's good to know. It's you, John? It's a specific beat thing. Nah, yeah, it, isn't, really. isn't, it, isn't it a specific Oh, no, no, no. no. It's a vi- no, it's a violin quiver. What kind of quiver? That sounded it. like yeah, Chewy. Right, that right. was close, but right, it sounded well, like Chewy. It, it may sound weird to listeners, but he did the little violin mo- movement thing. It's a, yeah, it's it's a, a rapid, rapid, rapid bowing on a violin. Yeah, yeah, you got it. On the same note, specifically. On the same note, yes. That's the big difference I was trying to uh, because it's often confused. I guess a lot of people confuse it with trill because a trill is between two adjacent notes. No, 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 no. Oh, tremolo right? single note. Yeah, definitely single note. Definitely, yeah. definitely. All right, <laughs> I got it. I got one. Good job, John. Yeah, we right. got there together. That's one. How many out of, out of how many so far? All right, I'm, I'm okay. Year. I got one. That's good. That's Give good. that to me. Yeah. That's good. All right. Well, Steve, um, please tell us what we're going to take on next week. All right. Um, Wow, I like to think that we have easy week, uh, difficult week, easy week, difficult week. But eh, today turned out to be a little bit more difficult. Still, it was just a matter of walking through the album. Next week ain't going to be easy. Oh, it ain't going to be easy at all because this is avant-garde. True avant-garde this time. I know that I've used that word in connection or to describe certain pieces before, certain parts of pieces. This is the whole animal. It's all avant-garde. It's by an avant-garde soprano and pianist and composer named Diamanda Galas. And she is known as having probably the most terrifying, being capable of some of the most terrifying vocals or inducing terror. So be warned. <laughs> if you, if you uh, have a delicate constitution... This, this, this album may not be the one for you because I've listened to some other things before that very few uh, works of music have actually made me unnerved like in a extremely uh, down-to-my-bone kind of I sense. Mean, the, the one I always go back to is, of course, The Paper Chase. That the Paper Chase. That didn't do what this album did for mm-hmm. me. Interesting. And what's the name of the album? The name of the album is called All The Way. And just to temper this a lot, All The Way is named after a Frank Sinatra song, which... It's completely in the other animal because you'd think that's designed for the masses. You know, Frank Sinatra. Who doesn't love Frank Sinatra? Uh, At least in a cursory sense. And that's because this is kind of, sort of, a cover album. I shouldn't say kind of, sort of. It is. It is a cover album. It is. There's uh, about seven tracks here, and they've all been done before. Many of them are quite old. And I I normally shy away from doing cover albums, but in this particular case, I'm not going to shy away because she's basically transforming these tracks into something completely different. It's not like a passing cover where, like, oh, yeah, they basically just wanted to do the track for the fun of it. No, she actually transforms the whole goal of these tracks and makes it her own. And uh, very few of them are going to be recognizable. So we're going to try to listen to the playlist alongside. I may even put it in the post. All right. Well, on that note, um, listeners, grip your pillows tight and prepare while you remember... Music is life, and And life life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. 
To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.